0: B-f-f-t. From the PAC West Center in downtown Portland, presented by High Caliber Millwrights, here's John Canzano with the
1: bald-faced truth. Every once in a while, the world uh, gives you uh, gives you justice, doesn't it? found out today that the PAC-12 conference who has uh, long been frustrated with Fox and FS1. You've heard me kind of rail about this stuff. Well, the Pac-12 conference got got a reprieve, so to speak, from FS1. No longer will FS1 broadcast Pac-12 basketball games with a remote broadcast crew. FS1 informed the Pac-12 this week. They said, all right, we'll be in person the rest of the way. And we understand why. Uh, I don't know if there was a disconnect between... Like sometimes when a company gets so big, the right hand doesn't know what the left hand's doing. I don't think it was that with this. Even though I think the Pac-12's probably going to give Fox a pass and just go, hey, they weren't really aware. No, I don't think it was that. I think think Fox has got this incredible push and big investment in remote broadcasting. And I think they saw the Pac-12 as a place to get it done. And uh, ultimately, I think every once in a while, like I say, the universe spits some justice at you. So uh, Pac-12 basketball is interesting to me. I've been, I'm more and more tuned into it. Of course, I'm working on a series, uh, you know, on what is going on within the Pac-12, who's investing in basketball, who is not investing in basketball. The FS1 piece was the first part of that. But uh, last night we saw USC beat UCLA. That's two straight losses for the Bruins in conference play. Uh, but the men's basketball standings in the Pac-12 are wild. You've got UCLA on top at eight and two in conference play. Utah's a half game back at eight and three. You got Arizona a game back of the leaders at seven and three. USC's a game back of the leaders at seven and three, and Arizona State and Oregon are both two games back. So you've got UCLA up top, and you have five teams then within two games of first place as they make the turn on the uh, conference schedule. Uh, they'll play 20 conference games. Uh, most of the teams are 10 or 11 games into that. Oregon is 10 games in at 6-4. and four. Oregon State is 10 games in at 2-8. and eight. What is wrong with Oregon State basketball? we got to talk about that at some point. I've given the Beavers a wide berth, but man, got blown out by Utah. Got beat by 20 yesterday, and now we will uh, play Colorado at home, uh, you know, coming up on uh, Saturday. Oregon will host Utah in a big game at, up top the standings. And, and I won't be the least bit surprised if Oregon beats Utah. Like, that's just been the kind of season that it has been for the Ducks, as they play really well when they have to play well, and then for some inexplicable reason lay an egg. Uh, you know, and and will lose games they shouldn't lose. It, it doesn't make any sense. Uh, I'm confused by it. I need a larger sample size. But this is crunch time for all these Pac-12 teams. And it looks like UCLA and Arizona, if you are uh, somebody who follows net ratings and looks at the rankings and the polls and, the you know, the bubble watch, like I think UCLA last night, what was at stake for UCLA was, you know, becoming a possible one seed. And what was at stake for USC was possibly being the last team invited into the field like ESPN flashed that on the screen during the broadcast of the game last night but I actually think USC is going to get the benefit of the doubt they're playing at full strength they've had injuries key injuries all season long and I and I I sort of suspect over the next 10 games in conference play that USC is going to rise in the standings I don't think it was accidental last night that they beat UCLA and and beat them handily beat them by 13 so keep an eye on that but you know, In the coming weeks, we're going to talk more about basketball. I'll get out on the road. I went to uh, Arizona last week, saw Arizona State play both uh, USC and UCLA. I just wanted to get a look at some of the teams on top of the conference. I want to see Oregon this weekend against Utah. Uh, next week, uh, I'm uh, getting out on the road on the weekend, too, to see some games. But uh, we'll talk a lot more about the college basketball season. But here's my question for the room and a question for you guys. As you're listening, what do you make of Pac-12 basketball? Because I'm just going to tell you, here's here's what I learned today. I talked to Z- Jamie Zaninovich, who is the deputy commissioner of the Pac-12 this morning. Got on a phone call with him. Was on for quite a while. We kind of talked about what it is that this conference needs to do strategically to help these teams get in position to make the tournament. Like, if, if Zaninovich has a job description, he's the supervisor of basketball, he's a deputy commissioner, they call him a CEO, but... If he's got a job description, more or less, it's kind of in his area of expertise when you look at how many teams the Pac-12 gets into the tournament. You know, he's done a couple of strategy sessions and launched some strategic plans that helped the conference over the years. 2016 and 2018, they talked a lot about, you know, gaming the schedule, the non-conference schedule. And what they learned was if, uh, if the conference as a whole – can win about 75% of its non-conference games in the early part of the season, it sort of projects that about 50% of the conference will make the tournament. And as you start to walk back from 75%, there are big steps down. Right now, the Pac-12 is 81-41 and 41 in non-conference games. That's 66.7%. So it's about 10 games difference. That You know, 10 games that they lost, that they... If they won, maybe uh, the net ratings for a lot of the teams in the middle of the conference would be higher. Now, it's not just games that you lose. like Oregon had some bad losses. They lost to UC Irvine. Oregon lost to Utah Valley. The, people may remember that from the early part of the season. That directly hurts Oregon, but it also hurts everybody that plays Oregon because then the teams that beat Oregon uh, don't get you know uh, don't get sort of the impact on those wins. Uh, Oregon State lost to Portland State twice. Even though the rest of this conference is beating Oregon State, it doesn't help the rest of the conference that the Beavers, in non-conference play, lost to Portland State twice. Like, you can't have those losses if you're the Pac-12. Cal is the biggest offender of them all. Cal lost to Eastern Washington, lost to UC Davis, lost to Santa Clara. Like, anybody who beats Cal now, you're not getting much of an uptick in those net rankings by beating Cal, so those non-conference games are super important. It's why the Big Twelve is sitting on top of the net ratings as a as a conference. They just they just cleaned up in non-conference play. So, um, you know, they kind of looked at that. They looked at scheduling, but the bigger thing is they talked to the programs about making a financial commitment to basketball. And I'm going to dive deeper into this in the coming weeks. But you know, I looked at sort of the financials at Oregon. I looked at the financials at Oregon State. Uh, the recruiting budgets across the conference are very uh, comparable. Like everybody's spending $180 to $200,000 a year on recruiting in basketball. Or at least that's the line item that they're reporting on the fiscal report. And everybody's paying their head coach somewhere between you know a million six to uh, four million dollars a year, five million you know at, at a max with bonuses. In Dana Altman's case, and you know everybody's sort of in that same range. That makes sense to me. But there are some big differences between the teams that are in the top half of the conference and the teams that are in the bottom half of the conference, and they come in areas that aren't on the fiscal reports. These things that the uh, successful programs are doing are small things. It's things like, hey, we're taking chartered planes instead of, uh, instead of flying commercially. The conference right now does not mandate that members take charter planes. But I can tell you that most of the teams that are playing in the top six positions in the standings are teams that take charter flights. They're teams that have practice facilities. They're teams that invest in recruiting and their coaching staff. Um, these are teams that are making, you know, investment that I think goes outside of the things we normally look at. And I think it's really interesting. And they also happen to be programs that have a decent NIL collective attached to their university. So keep an eye on those things in college basketball, and I'll dive deeper on them. But I want to know, when you think of Pac-12 men's basketball in particular, you may go back to, like, March of 2021, very fruitful. The conference had four teams in the Sweet 16. Deep tournament runs by USC, UCLA, and Oregon State in particular. The Trojans... And the Beavers both made the Elite Eight. UCLA made the Final Four. It was the largest financial windfall that the Pac-12 enjoyed from the NCAA tournament in conference history. The value of every March Madness game to the Pac-12, whether the team wins or loses, is $2 million. That's $2 bucks just to show up and play. So Oregon, Oregon State, UCLA, and USC all made the Sweet 16 in 2021. Uh, three of those teams advanced, and when they advanced, uh, that was $6 million. And then UCLA advanced again, and that was 2 more million. So, you know, that was the biggest haul ever by the Pac-12 Conference. By comparison, here we are two years later, two marches later approaching, and Arizona and UCLA look like they'll make the tournament. Beyond that, I really like USC, and Utah is busy constructing a resume, but then you've got Arizona State and Oregon who, you know, on their best days look like tournament teams and on their worst days look like they belong nowhere near the postseason. So here we are, getting three teams to the field. I think the Pac-12 probably will get three in, and I think USC is going to be the third. Can they get a fourth? I don't know. It's I think the odds are against them. But if the fourth is out there, it might be Utah, or it might be Arizona State if they win the conference tournament, or it might be Oregon. Uh, if Dana Altman can catch lightning in a bottle. But it isn't trending that way for Arizona State and Oregon at this current moment. I want to know what you see when you think of the Pac-12 in the standings. Uh, Steven, what do you see? When 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 I say Pac-12 men's basketball, right now what do you see? Uh, I see mediocrity, and that's just kind of what it is. I think
2: UCLA, is, UCLA and Arizona head and shoulders above everybody else in the conference, then after that— It's very mediocre, and it it seems like it's going to be that way for the next couple of years. I know Oregon State had their elite run, and then they went right back down to the bottom. Oregon's had a few good runs, but right now, you know, last couple of years they've been struggling. I just think it's very mediocre in the Pac-12, and that's how the you know the whole nation views that conference. And it's sad because you know the Pac-12, in the history of the Pac-12, it's usually been a pretty good basketball conference, but it's kind of fallen on hard times. And I think you hit it on the head: is that it's the losses to these. In non-conference games, it's the losses that these teams have. You look at all the teams on the bubble you mentioned. Oregon, they had those couple losses. Arizona State lost to Texas Southern and San yep. Francisco. USC, they lost to Florida Gulf Coast early this year. Utah lost to San Houston State. Like Those are the losses you can't have when the conference is so mediocre. So... I, I disagree with you. I think there's going to be at least four teams in from the Pac-12.
1: I hope so. And I, it's, who's you know, the fourth though? You think it's Utah? You think Utah
2: gets in? I think it's I think you're right with Arizona, UCLA, USC. I think they get in. And then I do think it's Utah, Arizona State, or Oregon. And and the thing about Oregon is John. This stretch right now, they've been playing better lately, right? Yeah. They beat Arizona, they they're beat getting, They're healthier. Yeah, they're, they're healthier. healthier. They look better. Their next yeah. five games are against all of the top five teams. Utah, Arizona, Arizona State, USC, UCLA, and then they wrap it up the season with the Washingtons, Oregon State, Cal, Stanford. So this is a really telling time for Oregon. They have a big chance to make a jump up and get right back on firmly on the bubble if they have a nice five-game stretch. So I think Oregon is right there uh, on the bubble with all the injuries they've had. They're getting healthy. I think they could sneak in as well.
1: Yeah, and keep an eye on USC. I, they're sneaky, and they just got their big guy back. It gives them some depth. Uh, it gives them they're a better defensive team. They have they are really balanced. And Andy Enfield's a good coach. I just saw them dismantle Arizona State, and then I wasn't all that surprised last night. Bill Walton was on the call. I was watching UCLA and USC play, and USC just took UCLA apart as well after. You know, a very mediocre first half, they came back in the second half and just railed them. And so I think um, it's going to be interesting to watch USC and see where they end up. But the problem is, it's what we talked about, it's the non-conference games. Because now even, you know, even these wins that these teams could get over Washington or Colorado or Washington State, Stanford, Cal, Oregon State, they don't mean as much. It really hurts the middle of the conference when your net rankings are not good, and your non-conference record is not great against some lower-tier teams. Hell, Chico State almost beat Cal. Like, that's a Division II team that almost beat Cal. That's bad. So, uh, coming up, we're going to talk to Josh Newman of the Salt Lake Tribune. We'll talk a little basketball, a little football. Dennis Erickson coming along at 4 o'clock. I want you here for it.
0: You've got the home of the truth. Back to the Bald-Faced Truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game.
1: Dennis Erickson uh, coming up at 4 uh, o'clock, two-time national champion. Our next guest is all over Utah sports. You want to know what's going on with the Utes in the Pac-12 by extension? Josh Newman, Salt Lake Tribune, frequent uh, guest on this show, joining us now. Uh, All right, you look at the standings of the Pac-12, Newman. What do you see? Uh, I see Utah
3: alone in second, uh, a half game out of first. Now, look, they've played 11 games. uh, Most of the league has a game in hand on the Utes, but the point remains, I mean, this was not expected. You know, you, you look at what Utah did last year. And who left after last season, and then you look at who came in this in this season. You're looking at the puzzle pieces. I thought that Utah would take a step forward. You know, I thought you know 16, 17 wins, at least flirting with the NIT, would be tangible, real progress for Craig Smith. But they have uh, surpassed that expectation. Right, they're 15 and 7 overall, 8 and 3 in the Pac-12. They are, you know, they're not quite on the bubble yet, but they are veering towards getting on the bubble. Um, Just a a gigantic step forward for Craig Smith here in year two. And if they they can get one off Oregon tomorrow night, uh, you know, the math starts to change, right? The look of things, you know, radically starts to change in terms of what this season could be if they win tomorrow night.
1: Yeah, it's a huge game for both programs. I mean, I think Oregon would like very much to win that game and, and, you know, draw closer in the standings and improve their seating possibly for the uh, Pac-12 tournament. But Utah, meanwhile, uh, chasing UCLA and a half game back. Um, is the Utah fan base engaged with basketball right now? I know they're coming out of football hysteria.
3: Uh, you know, this has absolutely, within the last decade, and you know as well as anybody, this has turned into a football market, a football school Um you know certainly within you know the last two or three years especially with all the success that the football program has had but at its core at its heart this is still like a basketball community right between you know Majeris and Van Horn and, and Michael Doliak and all the, and you know those teams in the 90s basketball is absolutely in the heart of, of you know of Joe Average Utah fan um, yeah you know you could you can sense it on social media and in the arena that, like, as this season has gone on, certainly it, it's had, you know, peaks and valleys. But right now, you know, they're at a peak here with this three-game winning streak. You can sense that people are getting more excited. And, again, you know, the Utah fan knows the history against Oregon, right? Utah is 2-22 and against Oregon as a Pac-12 member. They have lost 10 straight to the Ducks dating back to 2017. Dana Altman owns Utah basketball. That is not lost on Utah fans. So I think with the way things have gone lately, right, they're on a three-game streak, Washington State, Washington, Oregon State, and they've beaten up those three teams, okay? They've done what they're supposed to do against lesser competition. People are excited now, and they're especially excited again with this Oregon team coming up, you know, knowing what's at stake and knowing what Oregon has done to Utah historically.
1: Are you surprised that the program after coaching change – has pivoted so quickly into being a contender?
3: Yes, I am. Uh, this is not a place, this is not an athletic department that's just going to welcome in, you know, academic cases and and JUCO transfers. That, that That's just not how, you know, this football program and basketball program are, right? This isn't Iowa State and other places that go the JUCO route and can turn it around immediately. Um, I think that, uh, excuse me. I don't think there's enough appreciation for the mess that Craig Smith inherited. Like you had a lot of guys walk out the door. You didn't have a great team last year. And look, th- this isn't a super over the top talented team now. But I think I think a lot needs to be said for the job that Craig has done. Because again, walked into a mess. They you know they dealt with last year. Things have turned around this year. And again, they are very clearly ahead of schedule. And it's going to be a fascinating stretch run here, but no matter how the season ends, right, you know, whether or not it ends in the NCAA tournament or the NIT, it's still a gigantic step forward. The NCAA tournament would be gravy. All right. And if they don't go into the toilet here entirely, they are at least going to the NIT. That's absolutely a huge step forward for Craig Smith.
1: It feels like they're in position. Like, you know, I talked to Jamie Zaninovich with the Pac-12 today kind of about the state of things, and, you know, he brings up uh, Arizona, UCLA. Uh, I saw USC play last week and then saw them again last night. They look really good right now, and I think they're going to get in. I think Utah may be that fourth team. He says that the inside the conference offices – It would take. It would be the equivalent of threading a needle. But he says they think they there's still a shot to get five in, and if that happens, Utah, Utah. (laughs) Yeah, I know, I know. Uh, Utah is got to be one of those. I think it's closer to three, maybe four, if the right things fall into place.
3: If we're you know, look, we're sitting here right now. uh, UCLA is going to the NCAA tournament. Arizona is going to the NCAA tournament. That's two. I think that USC is in position. I think they still have work to do, right? Look, that that win over UCLA, that was only their second quad one win. Okay, so they they still have work to do. Uh, Arizona State did not help itself last night at Washington. I thought for a while Arizona State was looking like, you know, that most viable number three team in the Pac-12. That's no longer. So, yeah, Arizona, UCLA, USC has some work to do. I think they'll get there. I don't know entirely just what to think about Utah. Like I think they're capable, but the the resume is not great. Look, you're 2 and you are 2 and 3 against quad 1s. You are 4 and 7 against quad's 1 and 2 combined. Not good enough, but the fact that you are 11 and 0 against quad's 3 and 4 means that you're going to have opportunities down the stretch here. Okay? You don't have any bad losses in terms of metrics, but you have to get going. Okay? You have Oregon left. You have to go to the Arizona schools. That's two quad one opportunities. You have to play UCLA here in Salt Lake City, USC here in Salt Lake City. There are opportunities here. Don't know fully what to make of Utah, but I think they're capable. But to your point, yeah, i like the Pac-12 to get three. Uh, if Jamie thinks you're getting five, I, 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 I like some of what he's having.
1: <laughs> Same way. If I worked in the Pac-12 offices, I might see a thread and needle uh, possibility, but – You know, I think there's a chance there's only two, but when I see a third, it's USC for me. Just my eyes tell me USC is going to finish this season strong. Utah, I think it really does hinge on tomorrow's game, and it's an important game, uh, obviously, for both programs. Uh, Josh Newman, Salt Lake Tribune, is with us. Uh, What makes the Utah team go? If people are watching this Oregon-Utah game tomorrow, where should their eyes be?
3: Yeah, Utah does two things exceptionally well. They defend, okay? They are a top-ten defense in terms of uh, field goal percentage defense and three-point field goal percentage defense, okay? So they defend and they rebound, okay? They're they're a top – I haven't looked at it today. They're a a top-15-ish team in terms of rebounding margin nationally, okay? They don't always have enough offense, okay? The offense has kind of been hit or miss. You know what you're getting out of Brandon Carlson, okay? He's a Pac-12 Player of the Year candidate, you know most nights what you're getting out of Carlson. But Gabe Madsen has been pretty steady, but he can be inconsistent. Lazar Stefanovic, he could be inconsistent. But when it's going, it's going. Okay, so defend and rebound, that's two things that Utah did not do well enough the first time they played Oregon uh, January 7th at the Huntsman Center. I, I was looking at it before I got on here. Oregon shot like 41% for the night at Utah. Not bad for Utah, but just not good enough, right? That's, like, more than they want to give up. And Utah was minus two on the glass against Oregon the first time around. So, you know, the the offense is, is like Jekyll and Hyde. You don't quite know what you're getting. But, you know, look, we're 22 games into this thing. When Utah defends and when they take care of the boards, they're usually okay. And that shouldn't be any different tomorrow night against an Oregon team. that Look, they're, they're not super consistent either, right? I know that they were banged up early, right? They lost to UC Irvine. Lost to Utah Valley. They're healthy now, but now there's some questions about effort, right? They looked okay last night against Colorado, but you look at the loss to Stanford, that was a, a, a bit of a head scratcher. So I don't know. You know, I, I used up my weekly newsletter this week to to essentially write that it's time for Utah to get over this, at least for a night, right? It's time to get over this Oregon problem, right? This isn't Peyton Pritchard and, and Tyler Dorsey. This isn't Louis King. This isn't any of that, okay? This is an inconsistent Oregon team, and Utah's best? I've watched 22 Utah games. I've probably watched parts or all of eight or nine Oregon games. Utah's best is better than Oregon's best. Like, it's time for Utah to get over this, especially given what's at stake tomorrow night.
1: Yeah, and if they don't get over it, uh, give me an idea of the psychological damage or obstacle that presents for Utah down the stretch, if Dana Altman goes to uh, you know twenty three and two against Utah after tomorrow's game, does that stick in Utah's craw for the rest of this season?
3: I'm going to say no, just because you know with this team, there's a bunch of veteran guys on this team. You know, guys with voices, guys that have been willing to speak their mind when things are you know hitting a valley. Look, for example, you had it rolling along pretty well, and then you had this three game skid where you lost to Oregon. Uh, to UCLA and to USC, and things were going uh, downward. And, you know, look, you circled the wagons. You had a couple of uh, closed-door meetings with the players. Guys spoke their minds. They got it together. And they're here now with this three-game winning streak, okay? So things are going back up. If they lose to Oregon, it's not great. It's not a season-ender, but it's not great. Like, is this going to end the season? No. But if you do lose this game, you're going to have to come home and you're going to have to – do the same thing again. You know, your guys, your older guys with voices, guys that, you know, usually step up and act like leaders are going to have to do that again because even if you lose this Oregon game, at yeah, large stuff is not dead, but your closing stretch is pretty is pretty rugged. Again, you have to go to the Arizona schools. The L.A. schools are coming here. You have to play Colorado twice. So uh, things would get markedly easier with a win tomorrow, but things are not dead in the water if they lose.
1: Josh Newman, Salt Lake Tribune. Before I let you go, I want to talk a little football. How are people feeling about next season, Cam Rising back? That probably created a bump in the enthusiasm.
3: It, it has. You know, the Rising thing, You know, people were very excited about that. So you had all on the same day, Rising, Fran Keefe, and Devon Valle all announcing that they're back. The thing with Rising is, look, we know the knee injury – in the Rose Bowl, uh, Kyle Whittingham seems to think that he will be ready for the opener. We'll see. But, yeah, people are very optimistic about what Utah could be in 23. And I know you've been on the air for a little bit. But Kai Bernard, who had entered the transfer portal, he is now coming back to Utah for a fifth and final season. So that's another boon for the offense, especially if Rising is not ready. If you have an inexperienced quarterback, At least you have a a versatile guy like Makai Bernard who can catch the ball out of the backfield. He does well in pass pro. That's huge if you have an inexperienced first-time starter if Ryzen can't go.
1: That's fantastic. Uh, I think this conference is going to be a lot of fun. Newman, you have a great weekend. I appreciate you, man. Thanks for joining us.
3: Appreciate it, John. Thanks.
1: There it is. Take a look at the Pac-12 schedule. Big game tomorrow with Oregon and Utah, and look—it's—it's it's a real question. I got a question for the room, Peter Sampson, uh, uh, Stephen. Uh, you know, in in football, Oregon State won ten games. Basketball, they are sitting on eight. Will this basketball team win more games than the football team did this season? Ooh. They have eight wins. They have 10 games left in the conference schedule. They would have to win 3 of the next 10. I don't think they're going to do it.
4: Yeah, that's tough. That's tough.
1: <laughs> that's my bet. You got to yeah. bet. You uh, which team wins more? Basketball or football? So, yeah, so they need to win 11s what you're saying more than the they'd, football team? They'd have to get 3. Yeah, they have to go three, 3 and five. 7 three or and seven. better in the next 10 games. No, I think they get 2. I think they yeah. get to ten, not eleven.
4: Yeah, I'm taking the under as well.
1: They're two and eight on the first uh, round robin. They'd have to win three on the next. Uh, you know, I hate to uh, hate to uh, bet against them, but they've put themselves in this position. Keep an eye on that. I think people will talk about it more as it approaches. Uh, coming up, we're going to play some punch at audio. Uh, Dennis Erickson will be joining us at four o'clock. The former two-time national champion and three-time Pac-12 coach of the year. <laughs>
0: Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750, The Game.
1: Anna got to go on a field trip today. The, uh, the six-year-old, the first grade, went to OMSI on a field trip. And I say she got to go on a field trip because, you know what, I'm sitting back going, you know, that wouldn't have been a bad morning. I don't know. I'll find out how it went coming up when she joins us uh, later in the program. But uh, have you ever gone on a field trip, either one of you guys gone on a field trip with uh, with any of your kids or school activities?
4: I, I haven't. I'm sure that day's coming, but not yet.
1: Yeah, I
2: haven't either. It uh, sounds... Dreadful to me to go to go with a bunch of kids uh, on a field trip. So I don't plan on it, but I haven't done it. I will say though, OMSI would be a fun place, but i've I've been there with my kids when there's field trips, and it is a disaster. Like there are just kids running around. I hope it's that wild. Anna has some good stories today.
1: Yeah, I'm sure she will. <laughs> She'll have some stories for us. I went on a field trip with the oldest daughter once, and they we went someplace. I don't even know where it was, but there was a uh, uh, a canoe involved, and um. You know, they said, hey, we need, uh," they had a lot of chaperones out there, and they said, hey, we need uh, one adult in each canoe and three kids. And uh, so I took uh, my daughter and two other kids that were in her class into the canoe. Uh, This was years ago. It was like a kindergarten thing. And uh, we uh, got out in the middle of uh, of the lake or whatever it was we were canoeing across, and one of the kids in my canoe pointed and said, hey, there's my dad. And I didn't realize, like, somebody else's kid jumped in my canoe who was also there as a chaperone, which I think is kind of a faux pas. Like, if your dad's on the trip as a chaperone, you should be in your own dad's canoe. I felt terrible. Almost, you know, said to the kid, hey, jump out, swim over to that other canoe so you could actually canoe with your father. Yeah, isn't that the point to do it, is to be around your kid? I felt terrible, but I didn't know. And the kid didn't, you know. The kid just jumped in my canoe, and away we went. Well, who's to blame for
2: that situation? I kind of blame the dad. The dad's got to take some authority and say, "Hey, I'm here for you. You got to get in my canoe."
1: Step up, dad. Yeah. Come on. Come on. All right, we've got some punchy audio. The best sound from all around. It's going to be NFL heavy. <laughs> We interrupt this broadcast with a special announcement from the Bald Fish Truth Headquarters. Hey, we're
4: all about truth, justice, and the American way here, okay? Which is why we've spanned the globe and pulled the top
5: audio cuts of the day. You're going to hear little snippets of sound.
0: Hey, it's time for Punch It Audio, presented by First Call Heating and Cooling.
1: Let's start with Patrick Mahomes. He has been named the starter. Andy Reid says he's good to go. But high ankle sprain last week. Here's the Chiefs' quarterback talking about it. Punch it. Obviously, I feel like I can still do a lot of things, um, but uh, it's gonna. We'll, we'll see
2: as we get closer and closer, and we'll see during the game. I mean, um, you can't you can't fully do exactly what you're going to be in those moments in the game. But uh, all I can do is prepare myself the best way possible, and then when
1: we get in the game, you hope adrenaline kind of takes over and you can make those throws when you need to. Patrick Mahomes, uh, if he's right, is a factor in this game. If he's not right, I still think Patrick Mahomes is. Good enough to get it done. This is going to be a great game. Bengals-Chiefs, I think the Chiefs are hoping that they can get through this game, get to the Super Bowl, get Mahomes a couple of weeks off, get him some rest, get him right for the Super Bowl. But, you know, early in the year, the Chiefs were my pick. I've cooled a little bit on that because of how good Joe Burrow and the Cincinnati Bengals looked in uh, winning a week ago. Uh, You know, also, uh, by the way, Chiefs linebacker Willie Gay talking about the Bengals. Uh a little bit of shade being thrown both directions in this rivalry. Punch it.
6: I'm just excited to be playing football, man. That stuff is, that's just what comes with the game, you know. Uh we like Coach Reed say we don't do no talking. We just go have a business when it's time to go. What is it about that Bengals offense that maybe impresses you the most? You played it
2: a few times? Nothing. Okay.
1: Right. <laughs> We're not gonna do any talking. And then he proceeds to trash talk, saying nothing about the Bengals scares him. I don't blame him for feeling that way, but you know the Bengals put that up on the bulletin board. Christian McCaffrey, uh, 49ers running back, talking about uh, his odds of playing in this game. This is him at practice yesterday. But McCaffrey, a big addition to the 49ers lineup. Punch it.
0: Just you know, do all the walkthroughs, the run-throughs, whatever, and you know, go through the lists multiple times with with Coach Land or Bobby T and. Um, It's the same process for me, just lowering a little bit of the physical load. Is there
1: any chance in your mind
0: that you won't play
1: on Sunday? Zero. Zero chance that he won't play. If you watched the end of the game against the Cowboys, you probably were wondering why McCaffrey was coming in and out of the lineup during the final couple of possessions, and then he had this big device wrapped around his leg in the second half. He had a bruised calf. He gave way to backup running back Elijah Mitchell, uh, who took about a third of the snaps on Sunday, but then Mitchell injured his groin late in the game. So the Niners have been resting both these guys. Uh, the prevailing story today is that you know Christian McCaffrey and the trade of McCaffrey to San Francisco is how the 49ers catapulted their themselves into position here to this NFC title game. But uh, Kyle Shanahan says uh, said today that that uh, that Christian McCaffrey looked like a full go. He also said uh, that, you know, Mitchell appears to be limited uh, with the groin injury. That might be a bigger deal. Big news for the Niners. McCaffrey has scored touchdowns in each of the Niners' first two wins in the playoffs. And uh, he had a really good game against Seattle. But uh, in that grinded-out game against the Cowboys last week, he was a factor as well. The defense just has to account for him. Jalen Hurts. Eagles quarterback talking about the Niners' D best defense in the NFL. Here's Jalen Hurts punching. You know,
6: I think um, you know they they play really hard. They, you know, they have a way of doing what they do. You know, they um, and I think they're coached well. They have great players. You know, I think um, for us we just have to execute. That can come from just trying to control the things we can. But we know we have really good, really good players that we're about to go against. So it'll be a challenge.
1: This is going to be a real test for Jalen Hurts. Like right? you know, as much as you talk about the regular season, what do we say? We say the that the postseason is where these quarterbacks make hay, where there is separation. Uh, the Eagles are at home, but the 49ers, uh, I think, are going to come after Jalen Hurts, and of course, I think you know they will. They will. Uh, they will try to limit what he can do throwing the ball, but it's Jalen Hurts. Uh, running the ball—that I think worries 49er fans and, and people like myself who root for the Niners more than anything. This is the best defense the Eagles are, will have faced this year. It—it's it, probably the best defense in the NFL. But when you talk about uh, an elite defense, uh, they force turnovers. They're good. They—they uh, they give up uh, five yards or less per play. They give—you know—16 points a game is first in the NFL. Um, you know, 77 rushing yards. That's second in the NFL. Uh, keep an eye, though, not so much on the passing numbers for Jalen Hurts, but on his ability to scramble and run. D'Amico Ryans, Niners D coordinator on that front, is uh, very close to being named a head coach in the NFL, according to Ian Rappaport. Punch it. D'Amico Ryans has emerged as maybe the hottest coaching candidate, and we are getting some clarity on his situation. Sources tell me and my colleague Tom Pelissero right over there, that D'Amico Rines has emerged as top candidate for the Houston Texans. His former team obviously was a star linebacker there. So many people thought when he was a player, man, this guy's a head coach, and he is close to being exactly that. From what we understand, Rines is set to meet with the Texans at some point after this game. Uh, If all goes well, and you know, you would think that it would, but if all goes well, he could be their next head coach. And, of course, for Houston, it has been a little bit of an odyssey the last couple years as they're rebuilding on the fly a couple different coaches. This is one of the, as I mentioned, hottest young coaches, bright young coaches, just 38 years old, extremely close to being an NFL head coach. This is a guy who played football for the Texans when he was a player, came into the league there, two-time pro bowler as an inside linebacker for the Texans, later played. Uh, with the Eagles, and uh, uh, the question I would have if I were Ryan's is, you know, look, this is a job that, you know, whoever they hire is going to be their third head coach in three seasons. David Culley, they hire him in 2021, they fire him at the end of the year. Lovey Smith, they hire him in 2022, they fire him at the end of the year. They have the number two overall pick in the draft. You know, they're in the market for a franchise quarterback. Uh, so what they're really looking for here is I think, you know, hey, pick a quarterback, bring in a head coach as a D coordinator. Does that fit? That's a big question. And you've seen teams do this before. They think, you know, hey, you go out and you get a quarterback, but is that quarterback going to want to come play for a young head coach, 38 years old, who is very defensive-minded? I don't know if it works. The success of that defense in San Francisco, you, you could talk about Robert Sala, who was before D'Amico Ryans. You could talk about the, all the players they drafted on defense. I think it's very personnel driven. I think the Niners have a ton of talent there. Um, Look, I think I understand why Jameika Ryans is a candidate here, but if I'm him, I'm treading lightly into Houston because it has been a career killer for two coaches. Punch and audio is done. We have our big splash coming up. Dennis Erickson, top of the hour at 4 o'clock. Be here for it.
0: Back to the Bald-Faced Truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game.
1: Tua Tonga-Bailoa, the quarterback of the Miami Dolphins, remains in concussion protocol. It's January 27th. He uh, last played right around Christmas, and here we are a month later, and the NFL is uh, uh, reported today that he he remains in concussion protocol. Uh, He will skip the Pro Bowl games next week, still recovering from that concussion. I think this goes way back, though. Remember in Week 4 against the Bengals, he had to leave the field on a stretcher. It was scary. Now, that concussion... Uh, kept him out for two games and caused a lot of discussion. I remember on this show talking about, you know, did the did the Dolphins handle that correctly? Um, in fact, it prompted a change in the league's concussion protocol, and, and it led to the firing of a doctor who uh, cleared him to return. Uh, the week before that, though, in week three, he was playing against the Bills. His head bounced off the turf against the Bills, and, and a lot of people think that, the concussion started there, and then repeated in week four, and then he got a head injury against the Packers in week sixteen. Got into protocols, didn't play for the rest of the season. Um, there have been, there's been some talk about Tua per, per, perhaps retiring early due to the repeated concussions, and I think it's really interesting. Like, it, I kind of rolled my eyes a little bit at this because today the news that comes out is that he's in concussion protocol and the league wants to be really deliberate with his protocol because they value player safety. Which we all know, if you value player safety, in week three, when his head and his helmet bounce off the turf against Buffalo, uh, you take note of it. Or in week four, when he leaves the field on a stretcher, you take note of it. You don't wait till week sixteen, but if you do wait till week sixteen, uh, you know—is anybody surprised that Tua's season ended prematurely with a concussion incident? It was a bad scene, and uh, you know he had uh, he had twenty-five touchdowns in thirteen games. He's in a four-year, thirty million-dollar deal. I get it, but uh, what we now know about concussions uh, is. You know, far more than we knew a decade ago or two decades ago. And I just find it really disappointing that the league is now we're, – we're now taking this seriously. He will miss the Pro Bowl games. And you know what the Pro Bowl games are. It's not even a real football game. It's just a bunch of games that they're going to play around the Pro Bowl. And so I'm disappointed with the league as this compet this you know multi round tournament of skills will happen and all this all these garbage games that are going to be happening in Vegas, uh you know is not going to play in them because they value safety. You guys uh, rolling your eyes at the NFL as well? Yeah, I mean it's just the same thing over and over with them
2: about just how they don't take concussions seriously. And uh, you know, I think it's interesting with Tua's situation because I feel like if he gets another concussion and he comes back, like. Yeah. I mean, that could that, be it. That's that's it, right? Like I, yeah. I couldn't, I wouldn't feel comfortable having to be back out there. So, you know, if you're Tua, you want to play football, right? Like he wants to be out there and he wants to play. He is a gamer, but at the same time, like you got to think about your health. And if you're the NFL, you really got to think like we can't let this guy go back out there. That you, like, you can't let him. I mean,
4: I, I wouldn't have thought. I, I watched that week three game, it, yeah. and he clearly suffered a concussion. He bashed his head into the ground. He got up. He wobbled, and they tried to call it a back injury. And that next week, that Thursday night game, I said, there's no way this guy should be playing in this game. It was horrifying. I thought there he might be done. So, I mean, who knows anymore? But it's a, it's, a, it's such empty lip service, John, the whole thing.
1: Yeah, I, I rolled my eyes because I, I'm like, oh, oh, now, when you want him to play these stupid Pro Bowl games that it's not really a game. I mean, I I was looking through sort of the events they're going to have at the Pro Bowl. It's a bunch of garbage. And uh, I'm going, well, now he's not fit to play? Like, after a month off? And, you know, I get it. They're trying to posture like they value player safety. But if they value player safety in week three, when all of America saw his helmet hit the turf, the NFL would have stepped in and gone, hey, he can't play. And especially can't play on a Thursday night. And that's what really becomes alarming. Uh it leads us to our big splash also in the NFL.
0: This is the one thing you absolutely need to know today. Look, look, look at it. Where? Down there. The big splash.
1: Well the Rams offense struggled this season. They couldn't move the ball. They were last in the NFL in yards per game. 27th in the NFL in points per game. Hard hit by injuries. But the Rams are in the process now, according to the NFL Network, of hiring former New York Jets offensive coordinator and Green Bay Packer, Mike LaFleur. Uh, ESPN also confirming that report. Uh, this comes, uh, you know, after uh, the uh, Jets parted ways with LaFleur. It's an interesting pairing. He spent the last two seasons with the Jets. They didn't do all that well, but... But prior to that, he was with the 49ers, with Kyle Shanahan. And it's his brother, by the way. It's the Packers coach, Matt LaFleur. But this is a guy who's been in the NFL a long time. And uh, Mike LaFleur apparently heading to Peter Sampson's Rams. That's not going to give you the boost you need, Peter. What you need is guys just to be healthy.
4: That's exactly what it is. Like, look, he did not do a great job with New York. But also, look, it's Sean McVay's offense, so I'm not really tripping on that. But it's health. It's health.
1: I kind of wondered, I saw LaFleur and I assumed it was Matt, but it's Mike LaFleur, former, uh, uh, you know, his brother is the Packers coach. And I kind of wondered, does that mean that uh, Aaron Rodgers will go be a backup in uh, Los Angeles? I don't think so. (laughs) Uh, Keep an eye on that, though. Uh, Coming up, Dennis Erickson's going to join us. I'm so excited for this interview. I hope you stick around for it. Two-time national champion, three-time Pac-12 coach of the year. I'll ask Dennis Erickson about life after football. We'll also talk about what it's been like for him to watch Jonathan Smith grow as a head coach.
0: <laughs> B.F.F.T. From the Pac West Center in downtown Portland, presented by High Caliber Millwrights, here's John Canzano with the Bald Face Truth.
1: Our next guest is a hell of a football coach. I last ran into him on the sideline before the Civil War game between Oregon and Oregon State this season. I walked by, I saw Dennis Erickson, and I just, uh, a big smile. It's a guy uh, who brought Oregon State to the Fiesta Bowl, put him on the map. coach Jonathan Smith. Won two national championships at Miami. Coached uh, in so many other places, Arizona State, the NFL, Idaho. I'm not leaving Idaho out. The Idaho fans are tweeting at me because I didn't mention Idaho in my tweet but he was also an offensive coordinator in 1979 1980 1981 at San Jose State I want to ask him about those teams too because I grew up I was 10 years old that was my team at Luther at quarterback Steve Clarkson Gerald Wilhite Gil Bird oh those teams were good Jarrell Thomas in the backfield I could give you names You have a team. You remember that team, that first team you rooted for? San Jose State, 1979, 1980, 1981. Those were my teams. And Dennis Erickson was calling the place. Thank you for calling the place for those teams. I had so much fun watching those teams.
6: John, thanks for having me. You know, that was a great time in my life because it uh, set up my philosophy a lot uh, offensively, working with Jack. L.A. and then being around John and all that, but you know, we were Jack was the first guy when we were at San Jose to really get in in the spread stuff and empty and nobody in the backfield, and that's what we, we learned. We learned it from a high school coach in in Los Angeles. It was John's uh, high school coach, and uh, and we, as time went on, uh, he continued to develop it, and I continued to develop it over a period of time and so it was a lot it was learning for me but it was a lot of fun and San Jose State I mean we had some players man yeah Mark Nichols if you remember him yep. he played in the league for a long time out of Bakersfield and, and uh, but those guys you mentioned uh, bring bring back a lot of memories that was a lot of fun
1: one of my favorite offensive players was number one Tim Kearse and you would get him the ball Tim and that guy would kill defenses
6: Without a question. We had him in the slot. Same thing people are doing now. And, you know, three receivers one way or two and two, and we even went to five. But uh, Tim Carris we always had him in the slot, and everybody uh, thinks they invented all this stuff. But uh, it was pretty easy. I mean, we, we put uh, Tim Karras in the slot, In those days they weren't playing a lot of nickel and dime, so you'd have a linebacker covering him. So only the stupid would not try to throw the ball to him. And, <laughs> We did many, many times.
1: <laughs> I have uh, I had Jerris Bird on the show, the former Oregon defensive back, and it was a humbling moment for me, Coach, when I realized that was Gil Bird's son. And I was like, I'm old. Like, that." what happened? You, As a coach, you probably saw generations. Like, you coached different generations, didn't you?
6: Yeah, I really did. And, you know, Gil, Gil was a great player. Uh, Gil Bird played, played in the league for a long time, but... I look back at the players we had there, and I remember we played Baylor back there when they had Mike Singletary mm-hmm. who's their middle linebacker, and they were ranked I think one or two in the country. And so we went back, we went back there, and we spread them out. And one one guy in the backfield, and receivers, and Singletary had to cover Pierce, and we ended up upsetting him. Yeah. And uh, he was so freaking tired after that game because we threw it all the time. And he had to cover yeah. up Singletary, and and I saw him later on in life. I said, what did you think? He said, why in the hell didn't you run at least one place, like sit down and relax?
1: <laughs> yep, I love it. Uh, you know, Dennis Erickson is our guest, and, you know, I want to talk about a lot of different things, but what was that like for you to see Jonathan Smith at Oregon State? I knew you were on the sideline for that Civil War game, and, you kind of watched that unfold, and you said to me before the game, "You said it's his time." I I thought that was that was really interesting because that game ended up being his time.
6: Well, without a without a question, Jonathan is a true beaver and and the uh, old you know, coach for me at Montana, and and, uh, and of course played played for me. I, you know his ideas, and I'm not taking any credit for it at all. But you know we were a lot alike personality-wise as far as. You know, what we did offensively and, you know, our philosophy with players and how to develop players, which a lot of people don't give anybody enough time to develop their players. They all go into the transfer portal or whatever the hell that is. And uh, But John's super. I mean, he, he coaches like he plays. I mean, look at him. He says he's 5'10", I don't know. I, I post him up all the time when we play basketball, so I don't know how tall he is. But uh, I mean, he's just a... He's, he's just a freaking great coach. Players love him. People in Corvallis love him. He's, the thing that he's done, he, he has got a great coaching staff. You know, Jimmy Mahalchuk, who played for me at, at Washington State. Trent Bray, who played, you know, for me. And, and, uh, and of course, his dad coached for me. But, but he's very solid in his beliefs. And what they do offensively is old school, if you want to call it old school. But they do it in the NFL all the time. But, I mean, they're, they're going to build their offense around the run, and they're going to be physical and tough, and, and they can spread them out. They do all that stuff, but the main part of their game, you know, is, is running the football. And, uh, and the other thing that he does, I think, I know they got the kid from Clemson in the portal, but he builds. I mean, yeah. he's still going to spend all kinds of time in the portal. He'll get, he'll get guys that transfer. And uh, things like that, but he still builds it from freshman and sophomore. Gets a few JC guys and a, you know, a few transfer guys. But his philosophy and it's and it's showing up. I, I look at, you know, the Pac-12 every time, and they are probably the most solid, maybe not the most talented, but the most solid football team that was in the league this year. Them I in mean, Utah, and Kyle's kind of the same way. You know, that's how he's built built his uh, program at Utah
1: when you develop quarterbacks you know ideally you want as much time as possible but for you to take a big step forward with a young quarterback how much time do you need with a guy coach and what did what did you see over the year i'm sure it varies with different players but what's your your thought on developing a qb
6: well just the basics i mean i mean it's almost like going to the high school camp, you know, when you coach them up and when you do it in spring and when you, I mean, you work on, you know, on steps and throwing the ball and, but there's a lot of things that uh, you got to find out about them. what kind of leaders are they, what kind of competitors are. There's there's a lot of things other than just being, you know, a good athlete. He's developed guys that weren't all that good, you know, shoot, they won 11 games this year You know, I don't know that a quarterback's going to be a number one pick. But what I'm saying, he just develops. He just develops players, and and they're always good on on defense. Now they have Trent running the defense, and, uh, you know, I couldn't be more excited about what's going on there.
1: Yeah, how does that make you feel? Because, you, you know, you coach with him at different stops, and, you know, you yourself look back at even the early days of your coaching, and there were a lot of influences on you. You're that guy now for a lot of different coaches, including him.
6: Yeah, uh, and you know I'm proud of that. And uh, the thing about Jonathan, he, he's not an arrogant. You know, some of these coaches nowadays blow my mind, but he's not a—he's not an arrogant guy. I mean, he—you know—he spends a lot of time with his coaches. Got a good staff, and he gives players a chance. And uh, and when he took that thing over, it was a freaking mess, as you know. Yeah. And, uh and he—he. He, had that one win, I think, the first season, and he just built it and built it and built it, and it's going to get better because he hasn't changed what he's going to do. When
1: uh, when did you know you had something in him as a QB? Because you had some nice pieces around there with Chad Johnson and and TJ and uh, you know and and Simon and but how did you know with Jonathan that you had
6: something? Well, when you look at him physically to start with. You know, it's it's you know he's not six three. not doesn't have run four or five or anything like that. But what he was is one of the greatest competitors that I've ever been around. And uh, studied football. That's why he's such a good coach. I mean, he spent a lot of time. Him and I spent a lot of time in the film. And because uh, when I went there, they had a couple other players that were supposed to beat him out. And and we went through Spring football wasn't even close. And After two weeks of spring football, I said that's our guy, and and he was. And a good thing about him, you know, I've seen him a couple times come off. I chew his ass out, and then he chews my ass out. So that was a pretty good deal. I mean, that's how it was. He knew the game as well as I did, and uh, but he had a good, you know, he had a really good arm. I mean, he was a very, very good passer, very good passer. And what we were doing and trips and spreading them out, he was that was ideal for him. And the offense, you get the ball out a lot. And, uh, you know, it was perfect for him. And and he's doing that. And, you know, like I said, they're running the football extremely well. You, your time at Miami,
1: uh, you know, nothing but success. 63-9, and nine, two national championships. You were in, you know, the Orange Bowl or the Sugar Bowl, the Fiesta Bowl, it seemed like, every year. Um, you go back to that time. Uh, what went right at Miami
6: that helped you line that up? Well, you know, I, I went from Wyoming to Washington State, and really that was my goal. My dad, coached at Washington State, went to Washington State. A lot of my family, and you know, I, I was a Cougar from when I was six, seven years old, and listened listened to their games, you know, on the radio. Listen to guys that uh, ended up being great players. So it. Uh, Washington State was, you know, the place I wanted to go, and I I did, and was only there, you know, two two years, and now all of a sudden I'm sitting there, forty years old, or whatever the heck I was, I, I don't know. Feels like I'm about ninety now, so, but <laughs> he, uh you know, just when you went there, and you got you got to give credit credit to Howard Schnellenberger, and of course Jimmy Johnson, and uh, and what I what I did there is nothing. I didn't change anything uh, other than what we did offensively, basically. We kept the defense. Sonny Lubick was my defensive coordinator who, you know, had a Hall of Fame career at, at uh, Colorado State. And uh, and we brought a lot of coaches from the, from the West Coast out there. I and mean, believe me, it's a little different uh, atmosphere in uh, Miami, Florida, than Pullman, Washington. I mean, it's a little different group of people. and. Uh, But I'll tell you what, the thing that I learned from them is that they wanted to have fun and they, you know, they got credit for being the party guys and all that. That that, that was so far from the truth, it was unbelievable. But where, where they were raised in the culture they were raised in, you know, you had fun playing the game. I mean, they weren't ever to try to intimidate people. They intimidated them because they were good. But it wasn't even about that. I mean, they just had fun playing. It. And, uh, you know, in my opinion, they invented swag. I mean, if you see swag, Miami should be after it. And that's what it was about. And so I went there, I, and we got there, and we went into spring football. And, and fortunately, uh, you know, they had a lot of respect for myself and, and my staff. And, you know, we cared about them. And, and I remember the first meeting that I went into after that after the, uh, I was hired before spring ball, I went in and I answered questions and all that stuff, and and a guy in the back, a guy by the name of Cortez Kennedy, who you might remember, Cortez never (laughs) said very much, and he raised his hand and he says, Coach, are you going to let us have fun? Are we going to be able to have fun and play? I said, hell yeah. I'm not change anything, and we we did it, and we took a a little bit on, on that part, but it's not anything like it is now, but uh, it was a... They, they loved flying the game, and they loved winning, and they loved being out there, and they loved being out there in the hot sun. And, you know, most of those players were, you know, from from the Florida area. and But we got some from Pennsylvania and California, but, you know, the atmosphere was, was unbelievable. And uh, when Jimmy went to Dallas, Sam Jankovich, you know, I, he, I knew him when, when I was at Washington State. And I'd, I'd known him forever because it, he coached me at uh, at Montana State when I was playing. And uh, So anyway, he moved on his career, and all of a sudden he's he's in uh, Miami. And uh, so out of the blue, when Jimmy leaves, he calls me. I didn't expect to get that call. I had no idea. I was worried about trying to win some games at Washington State. And and. Uh, I almost didn't take that job. I, I went back and forth, and, and uh, but I, I just said, hey, man, this, you're in this business for all these years, and you had an opportunity uh, to maybe win a national championship. I mean, you got to take it, and that's what happened. And, and we, had, we had a lot of fun playing. We lost some games, and we had some issues here and there. But I'll tell you what, I'd, I had a lot of fun coaching, a lot of fun coaching there. And, I, I'm closer to, to the players at Miami than other places, you know, other than Oregon State, and uh, so it, it was a real family atmosphere, and uh, we had great players, man. I wouldn't want to play against this, particularly yeah. on defense, because I mean, we had those guys, you know, Cortez and Warren Sapp, and I mean Ray Lewis, and I mean there's some pretty good players. I think it was all coaching, to be honest, but yeah. we did have <laughs> some pretty good players.
1: Yeah, yeah, and you, you know, but you get, you say you go in there, you don't change anything with the offense, and then you get a very different job at Oregon State when you walk through the doors. This was not a program that had had history; it, it had gone twenty-eight years without a bowl game, and you, uh, in your second year, go eleven and one, go to the Fiesta Bowl, beat the pants off Notre Dame. That must have felt really good.
6: Yeah, I mean. I' say it now the worst mistake I ever made in coaching was leaving Oregon State. It was, it was stupidity at its best. but uh, uh, going in there, I, the thing that was fun about about there is, you know they hadn't won, and the fans weren't spoiled and And uh, shoot in Miami if you lost a game, they're about ready to kick you out of town. and uh, but at Oregon State, you know they, if you won and had fun and and did those things, those fans were unbelievable and and uh, and as time went on, and, you know, that uh, uh, Fiesta Bowl year was pretty special. And, you know, I'll never forget that. And we got better and better, you know, as the year went on. We almost got beat by Eastern Washington, nothing against Eastern Washington, but <laughs> in Corvallis. And then we ended up winning that game, and and, and then we started to go. And then we got better, and we could play at Washington, and we had a field goal at the end and, and didn't make it. But, you know that was our only loss, and uh, uh, but the program was so much fun. The people there were so much fun, it, uh, and I've said this before: is it was, it was the most fun coaching that I ever had. Those players wanted to do it, the boosters wanted to get it done. Nobody bitched, nobody complained. I mean, it, it was you know really a heck of a situation there, and uh, we had a lot of fun. The today's world,
1: you've got coaches dealing with the portal. The ability to transfer. You got name, image, likeness, which is kind of uh, you know creates a little free agency. Um, how uh, how free much of agency. a headache? To, yeah, yeah. How much of a headache does that look like for you?
6: I wouldn't want it. I mean, I, I don't understand what's. I, I really do not understand what's, what's transpiring. I, you know, I, my son coaches, and uh, you know, they have guys that are just. First thing is, you don't have an area to recruit. You and this guy, you your, your transfer portal guys. you got GAs, you know, that aren't even coaching. They're just transfer portal guys. And so they're looking all year for that. And, and uh, uh, you know, I want whatever is best for the kids, you know. But, I mean, when you have that, when you have the transfer portal, it's like the NFL, like you said. It's, okay, I played a year and I'm going to transfer out and uh, go play someplace else because I'm not starting. I mean, I mean, what are we teaching these guys? I mean, what are we telling them? And, uh, you know, so if you don't like it, you know, go someplace else. And, and you know, that's one part of it. they can transfer out. The other part of it with, you uh, know, NIL is that it, uh, it now it's how much money you're going to get paid. So if you're transfer coming out, out of the portal, so the combination of the two, and... Uh, so you come out on the portal, now you're getting recruited again. But now you're getting recruited financially. And uh, and it's like free agency in the NFL without a question, it's ridiculous. And I and I I don't blame the players at all. I mean, you know, there's kids that are you know, from wherever and and the parents and all of a sudden they come in and offer them a million dollars to go from point B to point C or, or whatever and now it's getting in a bidding war and they have no control over it at all. The, pre- the president's helped make that decision, and they don't know what the hell's going on anyway. I-, I just don't understand it. So now you got all these people, all the money, now it's gone too far. They're going to have to do something about it. And uh, uh, to me, it's, you know, I always tell the story. When I played at Montana State, if I got, you know, any of that NIL stuff, shoot, they probably would have given me a, free tab at the Hofbrau, and I could bring my whole offensive lineman down there on Friday, Thursday and Saturday night, and you know, I could pick up all the beer and wings and all that stuff, but we didn't even have that opportunity. So the question I asked, and I ask you, if you're if you're a right guard or a right tackle or whatever position, and you get a quarterback that's getting paid millions of dollars, and you're getting a full scholarship, what the hell's up, man? I mean, yeah. If I was playing guard, they'd see a lot of lookout blocks. Yeah. Yeah. I'd turn around and say, "Look out, rich man!" <laughs> and uh, so, to me, it makes no sense. I, I just don't understand. I don't understand what they're trying to accomplish. And it's uh, I'm in favor of them. You know, if you're going to nil, put it all together, all of it, and then split it. Hmm. You know. So if you have millions of dollars, split every guy in scholarship.
1: Yeah, I like that you know, better. So I think... now they are gonna yeah.
6: have. Oh, go ahead. Yeah, okay. you're gonna have problems in the sure locker room. Answer.
1: I mean, I think you're you're inviting oh. an issue in the locker room.
6: Exactly, not a question, and that's why Oregon State. You don't see that at Oregon. I mean, you see some. I mean, they get the quarterback. I mean, that guy's a hell of a player. But those other guys are treated good, and I, from what I understand, they've got a fun at Oregon State. And as you know. You know, the money that Oregon State has is not comparable to what they have down the road, 30 miles, you know, as far as getting buying players <laughs> this is what it's about. Now they're doing it legally. You let me know, ask you, Coach, go around let, it.
1: let me ask you because, you, you know, you had time in the NFL with two different teams and we talked about free agency. Uh, you know, give us tell us what we don't know about coaching in the NFL because you did all right when you went there. You didn't have the same success you had in college, of course, but you know eight and eight, eight and eight with Seattle a few years, and the Niners a little bit. But what's how different was that in the NFL? That business.
6: Well, the, the Seattle deal was 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 good actually because Tom Flores were there and for whatever reason they weren't very good. So when, when we came in, Randy Mueller was, you know, the GM and we had a long ways to go. And we kept building that team up and up and up. And, you know, so in the last couple of years we were there, and then, then Paul Ion buys a team, and then a guy by the of Bob Whitsitt, yep. who you all know in Oregon, basketball guy, and he tried to be a football guy. And, and uh, you know, we, we got let go there because he wanted to get a bigger name. Mike Holman is who we hired. Hard to argue with that. But so, I mean, so that's... What it was like in the NFL. Now, the good NFL teams, the coach has control, and the general manager. You sit down, and you know, like Snyder, you sit down, and then you got your scouts, and, you, and then. But you have you should have the final decision on the draft, and uh, and and dealing with. Then you have the GM dealing with the salary cap. So, but but it's but it's it's different. You know, they have a the players in the NFL have some of the answers. But, you know, the most of them, the really good players and good people, they don't bitch. I mean, if you can coach them, if you can teach them how to be a good player, they, they don't care. And that's what we had there. And the San Francisco deal was a mess. And that was my own fault because of the, uh, the salary cap deal that was none. We had no chance. But yeah, it, it's different. Uh, it's a... Uh, I wasn't a real good NFL coach by any means, but I was a pretty good coach, and I just, my personality was such that, you know, if I had to cut a guy, you know, that had been in the league 10 years and busted his ass, and, but I had to cut him because of a salary cap issue, I couldn't do that. Mm-hmm. I did it, but I didn't like that. So I really didn't, you know, Seattle was great, and San Francisco was, was a mess, but. You know, you have players that buy in, and, and you know you see it with, you know, with Bill Belichick and some of those places where those guys got total control. Pete Carroll and, and you know, they, and they have control. And there are some places you go in where you got some players in there. I think they have all the answers. Well, you have no chance. But you want to have their input. You got to have input from them, I and mean, you want to have input from those guys that have been in the league. And they can help you along, particularly, you know, when I went to Seattle when it was I'd never been in the league, so. But it's it, it's different. You're playing with a lot less players, and it's it's all about money, which obviously college is now too. So, coach, but I enjoyed uh, the time in Seattle. The other one, not so fast.
1: Coach, uh, I'd love to have you back on as maybe the college season approaches and get some more thoughts on you and, on college football. But I just wanted to catch up, and I think. You know, I, I know a lot of people in the state of Oregon miss you and appreciate what you did at Oregon State. And, of course, your uh, your career speaks for itself. But thank you for giving us your time.
6: Okay, John, I still read your stuff, by the way. I appreciate that. I finally that. Learned, how inter- I <laughs> learned how to get on the Internet. how to so. get on the Internet. Yeah?
1: no right. I just sit
6: here and, you know, oh, yeah. You're, well, you're, so you're so give, us an,
1: give us an idea. Like, you know, your day, day in the life of Dennis Erickson, you're waking up, coffee. You know, we uh, you play, you play golf. No, I don't think you're a golfer. What are, what are you doing all day?
6: No, no, I, I play golf. I you play do? Golf. Okay. Well, I work, I've been in a pretty good uh, workout regime here the last couple, three years. And uh, I go about four days a week, and I lift, too, and if you want to call it lifting. But, uh, uh, but then I do a lot of, I've got a flexibility deal that I have a couple days of work, which is <clears> over <throat> weeks, which really really helps me. And and then I come home and do some more curls. I like that. You know, (laughs) a bottle of beer or something like that. There you go. Pretty strong there.
1: I love it. Hey, we'll get you back on. Uh, I appreciate you. You stay safe, and we'll catch up another time.
6: Okay, John, thanks.
1: All right, Dennis Erickson. There he is. Love that. Just so rich, so much to offer. We could bring him on all season long and get him to weigh in on quarterbacks and personalities and what it's like to coach across uh, so many programs. Five different college programs. He won nine games or more with five different programs. Two national championships at Miami. Fiesta Bowl at Oregon State might have been a bigger accomplishment than a national title at Miami. Let's be real. Uh, Leave it here. you got the BFT.
0: You've got the home of the truth. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The
1: Game. Love that interview with uh, Dennis Erickson. He was towing the line, wasn't he, Stephen? On uh, you using the dump button a few times, wasn't he? Yeah, it was getting a close there. It's all right. I thought uh, I thought he uh, had his the tips of his shoes squarely on the line. Anna's popped into the studio, fresh off her trip, her field trip. Yeah. You went on the field trip. Did you go on a school bus? I did. I did. I wouldn't use the word fresh. <laughs> yeah?
5: How was it? Uh, it gives you a deep appreciation for teachers and everything they do. You went to OMSI
1: mm-hmm. with yep. the yep. first grade.
5: Yeah. What was the ratio of chaperones to kids? Well, I just, I had four children, including one of our own that I was in charge of. And uh, that was just stressful enough. I don't think I could have handled another. Cause I was just like a mother hen counting children all day long. You were
1: constantly like one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four. Yeah, because
5: your goal is like a parent chaperone at OMSI with four kids is not to lose a kid. It's pretty simple. No, one job
1: left behind. One job, do not lose a child. Do not lose child. Uh, (laughs) Were you glad you were there? You got to see our kid in the wild. Yeah. What is she like? Is she a good kid? Good classmate? She's mostly a good kid. Yeah.
5: You know, she's six, so uh, all six-year-olds need a little correction once in a while.
1: Yeah.
5: She's mostly good. I have no real qualms about her, um, let's say, holding her own, you know? Let's put it what that way. What do you way. mean by
1: that, holding her own? Like, she's she stands just, up for herself?
5: She's just not going to let anyone push her around. Oh, I know that. If it's... Well, cause, you know how kids can be, like, one way at home, and then you wonder what they're No, I know ...actually this like out in the world
1: i have looked at her she's six (laughs) and i've said hey do this for me and she'll look me square in the eyes like hannibal lecter and she'll say nope (laughs) and i go okay yeah (laughs) you win yeah so i uh i understand how that works uh we went we had a a long and i think really rich interview with dennis erickson in the last segment i really enjoyed it i could have kept him on for an hour and he he was at the civil war game i walked by him on the sideline and I said hello to him, and he said, "Hey, bring me on sometime." And so, I loved having him on the show. Mm-hmm. And uh, he says he's a reader; he says he's reading my columns now, which is the same as when he was coach at Oregon State, and he used to yell at me for what I would write. Did so, he? Yeah, he's very like he. His tenure ended. He was one of the first columns I wrote. Was Dennis Erickson's going to leave Oregon State? Oh, okay. And he got really mad. Yeah because he was just coming off of Insight Bowl and I said it's I said, look at his career. He left Washington State after he won, kind of did what he could do. He left Miami after he won, did what he could do, went to the NFL, came back to college football. So I wrote this column and I said it's it's probably I, I wasn't saying he must go, but I said it's he's probably fitting to go mm-hmm. more or less. yeah like he's re- this is Dennis Erickson's pattern, right? He got mad. he summoned me down to Corvallis. I went into his office. I'll never forget. It was the office that Jonathan Smith has now, although it's redone. Mm-hmm. And uh, Dennis Erickson had everything that I had ever written about him, even at prior newspapers, on his desk, printed out, highlighted. What? Yeah. And he, when I walked in, he said, "What did I do? Steal a girlfriend from you or something?" <laughs> and then, and then we argued. And I said, "No, it's just your track record." I said, "Look, if you stay at Oregon State for twenty years, uh, you know you're. I'm wrong. You're right." I said, "But this is your pattern." you bail. And then he said, "Here's my number. You know, we're good. You know, we shook hands, gave me his cell number, and then he said, "You call me anytime, whatever." Uh, 2 days later he took the 49ers job. Not making that up. 2 days later. <laughs> he knew. He that's, knew he was out. That's he was,
5: so crazy. He was already negotiating. So why would he bother to, like, fuss with you about it? I think
1: it? he just wanted to know that I know something. And there was probably a chance. You know what happens with these negotiations. That You know, nothing's official until it's official. There was probably a chance he was coming back. and he was, I think he was trying to figure out if I knew that he was on, he was on the move. Yeah. But, uh... I just shook my head when I saw the Dennis Erickson to the 49ers. I went, oh, look my at gosh. Dennis. Two days ago, he was yelling at me it's for saying he was going to leave.
5: Interesting to me that he thinks that the worst mistake that he made in coaching was leaving Oregon yeah. State. Like, what yeah. a thing to say.
1: Yeah. Biggest mistake. said it was stupidity of the uh, of the worst kind. He could have stayed there forever. And, you know, there would be a statue of him outside of Reser Stadium right now. But I still think he is... Highly regarded as the guy, like Mike Riley kind of built some stability, then he left. Erickson came in, took him to the Fiesta Bowl. I mean, that's a, that's a tentpole moment for Oregon State's program. And I still think Dennis Erickson, when you look at the history of Oregon State football, you know, you can talk about DeAndros, you can talk about Terry Baker, you can talk about Mike Riley, and you have to talk about Dennis Erickson, and now Jonathan Smith is being kind of, you know, the, the, uh, the people who are propping up Oregon State football historically, well-regarded, brilliant offensive mind, Dennis Erickson. Do you think Chip Kelly
5: would ever go back and say that he made a mistake leaving Oregon? I think
1: he would have a hard time admitting it. I think it, it takes some humility. I think Dennis Erickson's got that kind of perspective at age 75 as he's looking back. But he told me that same thing about 10 years ago. We were, you know, It was 10 or 15 years ago. He was at Arizona State, and uh, I saw him on the field after a game, and he said, I never should have left. He walked by me and said I never should have left Oregon State. Hmm. And uh, I loved having that interview. We'll get him back on. Leave it here. You got the BFT.
0: Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750, The Game.
1: So on yesterday's show, uh, around about this time yesterday, 24 hours ago, we got a call. ...from a guy who was facing a uh, dilemma, a conundrum, so to speak. No easy way out of a conundrum. And uh, he is a father, and his 12-year-old is playing youth basketball, and he is an assistant coach on the team. It so happens he's also a diehard, rabid, probably has a Philadelphia Eagles tattoo, Eagles fan... Who is really eager to see the NFC Championship game on Sunday? Unfortunately, his son's team plays games. If you were listening yesterday, you heard a fantastic conversation uh, about uh, you know what he should do, and we got a lot of great calls who called in with great perspective, whatnot. This went on into the evening on social media and in my email inbox as people began to chime in and tell me, uh, you know, as they li- they must have been listening to the podcast because it was kind of like this delay effect when people all night were uh, kind of offering their input. The prevailing sentiment, I, two things that didn't come up on yesterday's show, was one, is this really a question? Do you go to coach your son's game, or do you watch the Eagles game in person? Is that really a question, like when you step back? Uh, meaning Also meaning, was the caller essentially calling us to get permission <laughs> so that he could turn to his wife and say, no, nah, you know, hey, Kanzano and his audience said it was okay for me to miss the game, like, so that he would feel better about it, or did he really want to know? Uh, that's number one. Number two, there was a comment made about his son, who's 12, teasing him and trying to undermine him by telling him the score of the game because his son happens to be a Cowboys fan. I had several people write to me and say, I really do hope that the caller was kidding about that because that would be really disrespectful for your kid to kind of like jab at you the whole time when he knew something was that important to you. Um, it brings up a point like we're in an era where everyone can DVR. We're in an era where everyone can know what the score is. You can be in the grocery store. The game's going on at home. You just look at your phone. Like what is the protocol there? You know, I, I just assume that everybody's checking the score. I don't, I've never had a friend say to me, don't tell me what's going on in the game. <laughs> what's the protocol? Uh, I think if you don't want to
5: know, you have to like lock yourself in a windowless room with no cell surface, no social media, because the, yeah. these days, expectation, right? That people are going to hold back.
1: Do you think the caller really wanted our input on that, or do you think he, was, he, he knew what he was going to do and he wanted us to make him feel better?
5: I think he really was surveying the room. I think he was uh, at, at a bit of a uh, impasse because he had asked his friends, and they were kind of split on it. He said his wife had given him permission.
1: Hall pass, he called it.
5: A hall pass to skip coaching the Suns game. Um, so I, I think he was actually struggling with, you know, what is the best thing to do here. I think
2: right? he was yeah, 100% I, looking for us to tell him it's okay to not go. to, to watch. The <laughs> I Eagles had that game. feeling like cuz at the end cuz at the end yeah. we, everybody said you should coach the game and at the end he's like i don't know what i'm going to do
1: yeah i that struck me too because i wouldn't say everyone because there was a couple people who were like hey you know you could do this or you could do both or but i would say it was like 90% you need to go and coach the game because it's a it's a bad message if you skip your t- your son's game to go to a football game uh, you know, somebody emailed me later in the night, and they said the Philadelphia Eagles are not going to know that he didn't watch his game, but his son will never forget that he didn't go to the game. Like, that was an interesting point. Uh, and then at the end of it, Peter Stevens right, because he goes, I, don't, I said, you know, did we help you? And he goes, I still don't know what I'm going to do. <laughs> so I st- I think he really wants to blow off the youth game and wanted us to say it was okay. Well, he was calling
5: into a sports radio show, so yeah. it wasn't like he was calling into, you know, a parenting yeah. show. He wasn't right? on a
1: parent chat room going, yeah. "Hey, parents, yeah. uh, you, you, all you locked-in parents." He was, <laughs> he was basically going to the place where he was going to get the most empathy possible. Right. And he didn't get it. He got everybody telling him. And I was really proud of our audience. Like everyone who called in, everyone who tweeted. I was really like. I was inspired by the calls. Mm-hmm. Were you not? I was. I was. I, I've thought
5: about it multiple times even today. And uh, it's meaningful that it was dads. Do you think it's easier for people to call in and offer that advice, though, if they're not the ones with the dilemma? No. You know what I
1: mean? No, but I think it's. I think that's why people ask your advice. like Because they say, you know, hey, I'm in the middle of this. I can't see clearly through it. It's too emotional. Like, tell me what I'm missing. I do that all the time. I'll say, hey, t- you know, tell me, am I a bad parent? If, if I do this or that, mm-hmm. and people will go, no, no, you know, you're, you're a good parent. Or, no, you are a bad parent. Like, you need to go to the game. <laughs> so I think um, – I, I hope that the prevailing message was be a good parent first, be a good sports fan second. I had a friend who has a son who's six years old who texted me. He happened to be streaming the show from Arizona. And he said, that's not even a question. He goes, if my kid is 12 and still wants to play basketball – I am at every game. And think about the gift that that is too, like that a dad and a son getting to sort of participate in the in an event that they're sharing together. Like you know, we've been through this already with a teenager who went off to college, right? Mm-hmm. And I just think there's a point where in a teenager's life where their friends become way more important than their parents. Yeah. And I almost got choked up there. Uh, and their friends become more important than their parents. But in, And I don't blame them for that. It's just kind of how the social structure and the brain of a teenager is. But as long as that kid wants to hang out with you, go hang out with that kid. Be there as much as you can. Mm-hmm. You won't regret that. You, you know, you won't. You won't regret picking your kid. You may regret deeply picking the Philadelphia Eagles, <laughs> especially when the Niners put tread marks on them.
5: Uh-huh. All right?
1: Okay. Leave it here. You got the BFT. <laughs> Back to the bald-faced
0: truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game.
1: We got a big five at five coming up, big weekend in the NFL. Hour number three, the happy hour, will be dedicated in large part to the uh, NFL uh, and the playoffs but in this segment we're going to uh, play what's your peeve we do it every Friday what is bothering you what is on your mind I want you to line up now at 503-417-7575 and tell us what what is bothering you
0: what's your peeve all oh, that pisses me off that pisses me right off call 503 417-7575 and tell Kinsano. What's your peeve on the BFT? Brought to you by Revolution Dental Implant Center. A smile revolution, one day solution.
1: I tell you my peeve right now is the delay between the benchmark And the mention of the sponsor there, because every single time I go to speak and then I have to catch myself. That is my peeve this week. Uh, Anna, what is your peeve uh, this week on this great Friday? My peeve is
5: how quickly uh, my car becomes a disaster (laughs) roughly 90 seconds after I clean it. I don't care, like, how thoroughly I wipe things down and remove the mysterious McDonald's french fry that never molds from under a seat. Um... Like, I just, I will do a complete personal detail of my car, and our children, who are human tornadoes, uh, destroy it, like, moments later. It's, it's really astounding. It it's, like, should be like a Guinness Book of World Record for it. Is
1: that, isn't the, you said something the other day about um, French fries. Yeah. You, you found McDonald's French fries under the seat or yeah, something. Yeah, and they, yeah. And they're from Lord knows when.
5: Correct. And they don't mold. I don't know what they put in them. I don't know if they're partially cardboard, uh, but they just never go bad. And that is concerning because these are items that go into your stomach that you yeah, theoretically digest. And what are they putting in there? I what don't know. I don't know what they're spraying on them or putting in them, but it's magical, but really, like, wrong.
1: Meanwhile, I leave the refrigerator open for, like, 30 seconds too long and the milk goes bad.
5: Yeah, exactly.
1: The, yeah. The people at was Mac- that you? The pe- I don't know. People at McDonald's. Mm-hmm. They've got it figured out. Yeah. They are spraying down the gear. Something. Probably shellac or something. Shellac. Some kind of lacquer. There's a little lacquer on it. <laughs> uh, we're going to come to Stephen and Peter. Let's go to the phones, too, though. Will is on I-5. Will, what's your
6: peeve? My peeve today involves question marks. My que- and What I mean by that is when I see an email where someone has typed me what is clearly a statement... And they put a question mark at the end, thinking that makes it a question. Like, Mm. the sky is blue, question mark? That's not a question. That's a statement. And a follow-up to that is how the younger generation thinks that they need to put a question mark at the end of everything they say. Because what time is it? I'm going to go party now? I I hate that, that lilt in the voice. It's like, is that a question or is that a statement? I don't understand what you're trying to say. That's my beat for today.
1: More answers, fewer questions from Will on I-5. Does Will also hate yeah.
5: Canada? Because Canadians end all their hey? statements as questions. Stephen, <laughs>
1: what's your peeve?
2: I like I like this segment. Oh, no. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know what? Honestly, I haven't had too many peeves this week. Um, I'm just going to go with the uh, the old classic, why do my kids not ever put anything in the sink? And I tell them every single day, that they need to do this and I'm gonna stop doing it. But then it's also a peeve to myself that I keep like getting them stuff. Like my son will want milk. I'm like, you gotta put your cup in the sink and then he just forgets. And then the next day I was like, yeah, you need to do this, but then I go back and get him milk. So it's kind of a peeve at my kids, but myself as well. Like, how do I fix this? How do I uh, stand my ground and uh, fix myself, John?
1: Yeah, how does he fix this Anna? I don't know when you figure that
5: out let us know too.
2: Okay, yeah, you got to put your foot down I'm more mad at myself really
1: It's more of a peeve
2: at at myself You don't feel like
5: like the Smackdown
1: you don't feel like the kids respect your authority in that way not not for all things not for dishes Okay, the the next level is to
5: have them actually put it in the dishwasher. I mean is step one. Yeah,
1: we're just working on the sink right now. Here's one thing that I saw from on TikTok. Okay That I think I like your TikTok algorithm. I know I tried to employ this with the six-year-old and I got mixed results. But the person advised kind of coming alongside your kid and telling them, "Hey, when I ask you to do this and you don't do it, here's here's why I'm telling you and here's how it makes me feel," and make them feel that instead of just yelling at them for not doing it. Yeah, I don't yell. So just make them feel disappointed. Yeah, that, more or less. I'm not mad. Good. I'm you just go.
2: disappointed in
4: you.
1: Peter, can we get your peeve on the other side of the break? Yeah, we can. You got one?
4: I do. Always, John. Come on.
1: All right. all right. <laughs> uh, also, Martin, and we'll we'll let Martin and Ridgefield give his peeve as well. And then we're going to launch into the 5 at 5 as we get this show back on track. Dennis Erickson derailed us, but I was happy to be derailed by Dennis Erickson. Uh, if you have a peeve, uh, you can line up at 503-417-7575. I might let, let you slip in. Uh, in the 5 o'clock hour, but we're going to dedicate most of the 5 o'clock hour to the NFL playoffs. All of that ahead, leave it right here.
0: <laughs> B.F.F.T. From the Pac West Center in downtown Portland, presented by High Caliber Millwrights, here's John Canzano with the Bald Face Truth.
1: Well, it's Friday in the 5 o'clock hour. We will uh, do the 5 at 5 here momentarily. Also, what's on tap? I'm going to tell you what you should be watching this weekend in addition to the NFC and AFC championship games on Sunday. uh, We played What's Your Peeve in the last segment. Uh, Peter Sampson, we have uh, cleared the deck. This is like an aircraft carrier. And you've got the only plane to land here. So you haven't gone yet. It must be a hell of a peeve to have a whole hour dedicated to it what do you what do you got what's your peeve
4: how long you got john i can i can peeve for an hour if you want me to buddy <laughs> i'll tell you I'll, I'll tell you what i'll give you a quick one my peeve right now and this has been kind of a slow burning peeve kind of a smoldering peeve so we have a we have a, a really nice uh retaining wall like a rock wall uh in the front of the house and people use that thing like it is a park bench man i i if they're walking to maybe a bus stop or they're walking home or they're walking to the grocery store, it doesn't matter what it is. It doesn't matter the condition of other houses on the block. It doesn't matter if they have rock walls or not. They have to sit down on our rock wall. Every time I'm looking out the window, there's somebody – I've seen people laying down on it, picking up the stones, like the really nice flat (laughs) stones, moving them around. You know, every once in a while you get the knob that tosses them. We've had a couple broken. But even if you're not doing anything, like, can you just find another place to lay down and sunbathe than my yard?
1: you got to make it more uncomfortable.
5: Yeah, it's just too inviting. You yeah. just you need to get some of those police spike strips, you know, they that they lay out when they're doing a car chase there you go. and just lay that baby across.
1: Uh-huh. <laughs> or you got sprinklers
2: there? Uh, you know, there is, there is an automatic sprinkler in that front
4: yeah. yard. I don't know if it's hooked
2: up, but the yeah. Pro- the problem is, is, if you draw too much attention to it, they're going to sit even more on it, right? Yeah. Like, if you're like, don't sit on these rocks, everyone's going to sit on the rocks. This is
4: Southeast Portland, man. That whole neighborhood is driven by spite. Yeah. So you got to, you, you got to keep that yeah. in mind. A fine line. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I think, I used to have, uh, I, when I was living in, you know, many, many years ago in this, I had this area where we did there was not ample parking on the street and, more or less, you had like one spot in front of where you live where you could park. And, and somebody would always park their car there. I don't know whose car it was, what not. They had a really nice car. It really annoyed me. And all I did is I put the automatic sprinklers on to go on. Like I set it for like the late afternoon, early evening. And that person stopped parking there because <laughs> they didn't want the water spraying on their car, apparently. So I solved that pretty quickly. But I don't know. Maybe you just go out there and you start spraying with a hose and you go, oh, I didn't see you.
4: Yeah, you know? maybe maybe, th- maybe <laughs> that's it. Now, we have had an encounter. The, the last time mm. that I actually, we kind of said, like, hey, man, what are you doing? Uh, got very aggressive, very, very aggressive, oh. and uh, there's always that threat as well. But I like the sprinkler idea. I think that's like, good.
1: Just throw the automatic sprinklers yeah. on for about the time that they come by. It'll only take one time of them getting sprayed, and they'll never sit there again. Plausible maybe you can rig
5: it to, like, a motion sensor. Mm. So it's oh. a motion sensor-activated yeah. sprinkler system. Well, <laughs> they make
1: one of those for to stop like dogs and cats from going on people's uh gardens. Well, there they you have go. an automatic sprinkler that'll ch- ch- spray. Yeah. In fact, in fact, we had this little spray bottle thing. You remember that spray bottle thing we had? It oh, was yeah. meant to keep cuz there was a cat that was coming on to our porch. mm mm-hmm. And it was the neighbor's, kind of a stray cat that was in the neighborhood. But the neighbor, it was the neighbor's cat, but she just let it go. Yeah. And it just kind of hung out in the neighborhood. They call that
5: an outside cat.
1: Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so that's everybody's cat all of a sudden, <laughs> you know. And the problem was the cat liked our doorstep because the sunlight in the morning would shine onto the doorstep because <laughs> the sh- sun shines on my doorstep. And this cat liked to go up there and it would spray. And you remember the one neighbor was really mad, like had a confrontation with the other neighbor about it. Mm -hmm. You know, it was like two neighbors, neighbor on neighbor arguing. I didn't have anything of the sort. I just got this aerosol spray can thing that had a motion detector on it, and the cat came to the doorstep, and the cat went away. (laughs) So there you go. You got a cat problem, Peter Sampson. (laughs) Yeah, clearly.
5: Yeah.
1: Otherwise, you got to move. You know? Yeah, exactly. That's my other solution. Just
4: burn it down and start over somewhere <laughs> Just, else.
1: <laughs> knock the wall down. Bring down that wall, Mr. Gorbachev. Oh my you know? goodness. Remember when uh, President Bush said that? I, the old Bush. Yeah. yeah. It was the original. I oh no, no, know. it was Reagan. That was Reagan. It was Reagan. Reagan. Sorry, Reagan. my bad. It's yeah. yeah. Reagan. It was one of those old guys. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Welcome to the history lesson. There we the go. Pastry. That's why you come to the show. Okay? For not history. <laughs> We're here to misinform you. You remember when uh, Eisenhower put a man on the moon? (laughs) All right, let's do the five at five. The five at five. Uh, Number one in the five at five. Here we are,
5: on to the news. (laughs) Uh, So, uh, turns out the betters are thinking that Brock Purdy's feel-good story ends... In Philly, most of the wagers made have the Eagles winning the Mm. NFC Championship game and repping the conference in the Super Bowl. Uh, According to US, 62.3% of bets have been placed on Philadelphia to walk away with a victory on Sunday's game.
1: You know what the bigger indicator uh, that Philadelphia thinks it's going to win is? Mm. Philadelphia police have begun greasing light poles in head of the, ahead of the game. <laughs> they're bracing for a, a rowdy celebration. So they're greasing the poles in the city. I need
5: yeah. I need video. Yeah, that.
1: here, there's a guy up on the pole wearing his, you know. No, I need video yeah. oh, the of some greasing? police officer, some yeah. first-year police officer tasked with greasing poles. How was uh, your work today, honey? <laughs> they think that's going to stop them? It's, it's Philly. It's going to keep them off the pole. You know,
2: we'll see about that.
1: <laughs> keep the Eagle fan. The other thing that could keep him off the pole is the 49ers defense. Like, you know what I mean? If the Philadelphia PD is worried about a rowdy celebration, maybe they just should uh, share some Intel. Is the police the pole greaser? Is he like a rookie
2: or is he a veteran? Like, I feel like that could be a good veteran job. Cause you don't have to deal with people at that point. Like you're, you're just
1: doing things. I don't know, man. That's grease. Or is that like the
2: the rookie, hey, Rook, go grease up
1: that pole for me. That feels to me like that's an entry-level thing. (laughs) And is it, you know, what are they using? Is it like Crisco, Vaseline? Do do they have a paintbrush to apply it? Is it on their business card? (laughs) Straight hands. Yeah? (laughs) You know, if you get one of those combative people who like to film the officers, are they going to say, what is your name and badge number? And they're filming him, and he's going to go, I'm the pole greaser. Get out of my way. Number two in the 5 at 5. Conor McGregor is alive and
5: well, avoided injury after being struck by a car while riding his bike in Ireland. He posted multiple videos of the aftermath to this accident. He's saying he could have been dead there as the driver of the vehicle is apologizing to him. Mm. McGregor shows a tear in his pants. I don't actually... the photo of the tear in his pants makes me wonder whether he was actually wearing, you know, like.
1: Underpants? under Underwear, but yeah. that's
5: beside the point. Um, he appears to be unharmed. Otherwise, he was uh, hit from behind. He calls it a sun trap, and the driver couldn't see him. He says, full speed, straight through me. Thank you, wrestling and judo. Also, having an awareness on the landing saved my life.
1: I feel like Connor McGregor is just trying to change the narrative right now, you know. There was a story earlier this week where he was accused of physically assaulting a woman on his yacht last summer. And, and now this story, I just kind of wonder. He,
5: are you saying he staged
1: this? I'm just saying I don't put anything past a participant in a sport like this that is all about, you know, hype and marketing and then, oh, some fighting afterwards. So I just wonder if Conor McGregor, are there are there charges pending here multiple videos you know i don't know tearing his pants i don't know do you think he's just i think he. there's a chance here that he's just trying to change the story changing the conversation did you assault someone on your yacht no i got hit by a car oh my gosh are you okay you know what i mean Mm -hmm. try that at home next time you're in trouble i almost got hit by a car yeah okay number three in the five at five (sighs)
5: let's see uh lakers lebron james tying kareem abdul jabbar for most career nba all-star game appearances thursday night he was named as a captain and starter for the 2023 nba all-star game this is the sixth consecutive year that james who received get this 7.4 million fan votes that many people voted in this that's astounding He'll be captain the 19th consecutive year that he'll be an all-star that 19 matches abdul jabbar's for the most of all time and also sets a record for the most consecutive appearances the
1: the bigger record that he's chasing and he's in the home stretch of it is most points in nba history kareem abdul jabbar holds the record lebron is 158 points shy of the record um if you project his scoring average which is 29.9 points per game He'll get there in about six games, home date against the Thunder. Um, Anthony Davis is back in the lineup, though, so maybe he gets a few less. I don't know. But he's going to catch Kareem on points. That's remarkable to me. And when you look at his scoring averages, you know, Bill Walton said it on the broadcast last night as he was calling uh, the the UCLA-USC basketball game. LeBron's not backing into this. Like, he's averaging 29.9. He's got you know, uh, full head of steam, and he's chasing down Kareem. Number four? Yeah, I think it's four. Four.
5: (laughs) Question mark. Uh, Former Sunday Night Football sideline host Michelle Tafoya Mm -hmm. is saying she has hesitation about Lisa Guerrero's claims in her new book Uh that she had a miscarriage while working a game in 2003.
1: Uh, It's a little weird. Um, Okay, when she says she has hesitation. She has
5: hesitation. She's simply saying that she's questioning how devastating this really was because Guerrero says that she didn't tell any of her best friends about it. She really Mm. rarely talked about it to anybody and really went all this time without having discussed it at all. Tafoya is saying she's had multiple miscarriages, talked very openly about her struggles to have a baby. And uh, she says if it was such pain and she's carried this for 20 years... And her best friends still have to buy the book to learn about it. She sees a disconnect there.
1: Look, I, uh, I've i talked to Michelle Tafoya before at, at big events. I sat by her during one of the Super Bowls, and she wasn't a sideline reporter for her. I liked her. I respect her work. Lisa Guerrero's been on this show, and you met Lisa Guerrero. She was uh, a co-speaker at one of the Brenda Tracy events that we went to. Yep. Um, I, I have no dog in this fight. I just think I'm going to say this. People handle tragedy different, or adversity different even. I think it's a little weird for Michelle Tafoya to be saying, I grieved one way, and because Lisa Guerrero didn't, you shouldn't believe her. That's not a hill that I would climb up on if I were Michelle Tafoya. You know, just because Lisa Guerrero didn't say anything, maybe I don't know. Maybe, maybe it's true, maybe it's not true. But I'm not going to get out there saying, I have... What did she say what was the word hesitation i have hesitation unless you're certain that's not good reporting michelle Tavoya. what do you think Anna? uh
5: it's a little distasteful to talk that way about somebody else's very personal tragedy that she's writing about i just don't think it's really your place i agree she also gives her flack for you know, complaining about the struggles that she had coming up as a sideline reporter, and she basically has no sympathy for
1: that either. I, I again, I've had interactions with both of them. They probably both wouldn't remember me, but I'm going to say I didn't get a, like a weird vibe from either one of them, like that they were bad people. But I think if I'm Michelle Tafoya, unless you know that to be true, you might want to walk that back. Finally, number five in the five at five.
5: Um, So has everyone seen the video of Brevin Galloway on why he'll be missing the next two games for Clemson? It is, in fact, a medical reason, but he offers an explanation that is not safe for work. He says he was uh, lifting and then took a nap and woke up from his nap and um, his man parts were exploded. Those weren't exactly the words that he used.
1: Okay, so he went to lift, he came back, he took a nap, he woke up, and the family jewels exploded. Like, not
5: exploded, but were so swollen that he had to go into emergency surgery. I couldn't quite figure out what the actual medical condition was that led to this. The university um, called it an abdominal issue, which seems a little off.
1: Well, I I once talked to an NFL quarterback. Okay, I had a very eerily similar conversation with an NFL quarterback when I was covering the NFL in 2001. Okay? Really? Who told me he had had a procedure. Uh-huh. And I started pressing him on what was the procedure. Well, it turned out this NFL quarterback got on a plane... That's what he did. He got on a plane, and I believe I can say this on air. His testicles mm-hmm. got twisted. Ooh. It cut off the blood supply and the circulation to one of his family jewels, uh-huh. Yeah. and it had to be removed. Wow. And so he said, if you want to put that in print, you can. And I said, no thanks. We'll just say it was a procedure. <laughs> so we'll leave it at that. And I'm not saying who the NFL quarterback is. Why not? But there was one quarterback out there who played in the NFL. <laughs> you with, can leave uh, that part of me. Mis- not on one leg, but on uh, oh one boy. jewel. There yeah. you go. That's mm-hmm. the five at five. That's why you come to this show. Yeah. Not my business to report that. He had a procedure. Yeah. Okay? Yeah. I want you to leave it here. We'll talk some NFL and more coming up. you got the BFT.
0: You've got the home of the truth. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game.
1: Guys, according to the internet, and many of our listeners have called this to my attention, the reason that McDonald's french fries don't mold is because they're covered in vegetable oil and fat, and it takes moisture to form the mold. So they are coated in vegetable oil and fat, therefore they don't mold. Do you buy that, or do you want a scientific answer? We, should we just continue to push the envelope and ask the important questions?
2: I feel like there needs to be more questions asked. That doesn't seem like a valid explanation <laughs> to me. Um, yeah, I feel like they should mold at some point. I mean, you, maybe that's just me.
1: If you drop a bag of fries in the woods that are, like, homegrown, within a, within a couple weeks, you'll have fungus, right? Like, uh, this is like a science experiment. I, I got to think, like, some high school kid did this as a science experiment in recent terms. So we might be able to find some high schooler who has figured it out. We, but according to uh, the scienceexplorer.com McDonald's French fries are soaked in uh, oil and fat. And therefore, they don't. But um, this is kind of that kind of it kind of scares me. Like I, I, you know, I'm not a big fry guy to begin with. Whoa! But you know why? Are you are you a big fry person? I mean, who doesn't like fries? Mm, I I didn't. I grew up not really liking French fries. Oh, I hot. said it. That's, that's the hottest steak you've had today. <laughs> <laughs> I said it. Uh, <laughs> I like the Niners over the Eagles. Second hottest. Uh, okay. <laughs> exactly. Let's talk about this Niners Eagles game. Patrick Mahomes keeps saying, and you you've played that cut a couple times with Mahomes talking, feeling like he can do it, but we'll see during the game. I'm going to replay the cut here. Um, here's what the Chiefs quarterback said to reporters today. Obviously, I feel like I
2: can still do a lot of things, um, but uh, it's going to we'll, we'll see as we get closer and closer, and we'll see during the game. I mean, um, you can't you can't fully. Do exactly what you're going to be in those moments in the game, but uh, all I can do is prepare myself the best way possible, and then when we get in the game, you hope adrenaline kind of takes over and you can make those throws when you need to.
1: Okay, I have I I was kind of trending towards Mahomes being fine for this game. That oh, it's a much ado about nothing. But hearing that, it it eroded my confidence in his ankle, and in it, in part because I'm hearing him say, "I'm not sure how I'm going to react to this." Is what is he doing here? Is he sandbagging? Or do you think he's being honest here? Because I, I, I had the same thought, too. I was leaning towards Mahomes being healthy. That comment
2: didn't help. I think he did, I think he's sandbagging it because he fully practiced every day this week. Like, fully practiced. You look mm. at the 49ers. Christian McCaffrey did very limited stuff today. Elijah Mitchell hasn't practiced all day. But Patrick Mahomes was a full participant every day, not on the injury report. I think he's playing a little gamesmanship here. I think he's going to be fine. I, I, You know, he he wasn't. Super healthy against the Jaguars, but he was effective enough. He's mentioned that this ankle injury isn't as bad as the other one he had a couple of years ago. I think he's kind of playing it up a little bit, like he's really hurt, and then he's going to come out on fire.
1: I, I I don't know what to think now, but I do know that this rivalry is getting heated. Did you guys see the Cincinnati mayor declared Sunday, quote, "They got to play us day" ahead of the Bengals' second consecutive ASC championship game against the Chiefs, and he threw some shade at Patrick Mahomes. Here's the tweet. Joseph Lee Burrow, who's 3-0 and against Mahomes, has been asked by officials to take a paternity test confirming whether or not he's his father. End quote. This is the mayor of Cincinnati. Yeah. <laughs> Who is saying Joe Burrow has been asked to take a paternity test? Am I starting to think
2: that Cincinnati is becoming really unlikable?
4: Bro, that's not even the most <laughs> embarrassing thing a mayor of Cincinnati's done in my lifetime. <laughs> that's a deep cut. You might not yeah, get that. I don't yeah. know.
1: Um this that caught the eye of Kansas City's mayor and Patrick Mahomes' wife, Brittany, who called it weak and embarrassing. Um but uh, the mayor of, of Kansas City then tweeted, "No need to respond. KC's got class. Cincinnati has Jerry Springer and no rings. See you Sunday."
2: <laughs> so, <laughs> weak and embarrassing coming from uh, the girl who was splashing champagne on all the fans last year. So, yeah, <laughs> there you go. Um, I- I'm a fan of neither of these teams. Both these both these teams are driving me nuts, and uh, I hope they both lose.
1: Yeah, you want the you want the <laughs> no, no. NFC to win in the Super yeah. Bowl. I mean, I,
2: I just feel like Cincinnati, like, they're so new on the stage, and they act like they are you know, the, the big dogs, which like, is cool. Like, I get it, but at the same time, I find it so unlikable, and I want to like the Bengals with Joe Burrow, Jamar Chase, but their fans and some of their players are just make it really hard for me.
1: Yeah, and when you think about it, the Bengals, they won the AFC in 1981, went to the Super Bowl, lost to the Niners. In 1988, they win the AFC, they go to the Super Bowl, they lose to the Niners. And in 2021, they get to the Super Bowl and they lose to the Rams. Right? Is that right? Yeah, to the Rams. So they're 0 for three. Why are they talking trash?
2: They're calling it Burrowhead instead of Arrowhead. Like it's it's a lot of things. I mean, I don't know. I just maybe that's just uh, maybe an old guy here, but it's I find it very unlikable. I don't know how you feel about it.
1: I think it's it kind of. St- it's the trend right like we've lost civility on social media we've lost civility in politics and in a lot of discussions that people have that used to be civil like mayors used to bet like you know we'll bet you a case of you know if you're like the mayor of maine or you're the governor of maine or new england you uh, you could say oh, we're gonna we're gonna bet you lobsters against whatever now they're just trashing each other on now social we're just trolling media. we're just trolling everybody like, what is Cincinnati known for? Like, what could the mayor of Cincinnati... Maybe hasn't doesn't have anything to uh, to wager. Like, you know, he's going, all right, what are we going to wager here? I, I got nothing.
4: You can't write a check?
1: Pete Rose, that's what they're known for? <laughs> we, we have Pete Rose. We got a couple of Pete Rose books left Model over. <laughs> we got, uh, but, like, uh, beer. I mean, they're known for beer. Like, Cincinnati became the beer capital of the world. 50 breweries. I just looked that up. The Internet knows. So... So why can't why can't the mayor of Cincinnati just go, you know, we're going to bet, you know, a case of the finest beer from one of our finest breweries against the mayor of Kansas City who would say, We got barbecue and do it like the old time civil politicians, boring old politicians we wouldn't even mention on this show would do. And instead we got two mayors fighting and the mayor of Cincinnati clear now I'm kinda leaning Kansas City. Like it makes me want the Chiefs to win.
2: I agree with you. I, I don't like. I don't like the way Cincinnati has been acting this whole week, and I, it's so petty. But it, it's true. Like I, I just don't like it. And I'm not even one that needs you to not be confident, not be cocky. Like it's fine. It's. I understand you got to be viral. You got to make some noise. But just the way they've gone about it is just very annoying to me. It's really. It's really hitting me in a weird spot.
1: Coming up, uh, we'll talk about the biggest keys in the AFC and the NFC Championship game. Plus. What else is on tap this weekend besides the football games? We'll talk about it next.
0: Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game.
1: We'll talk about the biggest keys to the game uh, in the NFC Championship game, AFC Championship game, coming up. Uh, Every Friday, we also give you uh, what is on tap for the weekend. Uh, Of course, you have the NFC and AFC Championship games coming up on Sunday. Uh, I don't want to hit you over the head with that, but for those of you interested in those games, uh, 12 o'clock, the Niners are at the Eagles in the NFC Championship game, and that's on Fox. And then 3.30 on CBS or Paramount Plus streaming, it'll be the Bengals at the Chiefs. So that's your AFC and NFC Championship game on the weekend. So from about noon to 6 o'clock on Sunday, you'll have those title games and a whole bunch of football. But what else is going on this weekend? We look ahead to uh, the NBA schedule and a whole bunch more.
0: Now, it's time for What's on Tap and What's on TV at The Independent on the BFT.
1: Well, if you're looking for some college basketball on Saturday, number six, Arizona, will be at Washington, 2.30 on Fox. Huge basketball game at 5 o'clock on the Pac-12 networks on Saturday. Utah is playing at Oregon. Both of those teams trying to win that game and establish some position in the Pac-12 standings. Uh, the nightcap on Saturday on the Pac-12 Networks, Colorado's at Oregon State in a game that uh, I don't think there's a whole bunch of drama for the, as far as the conference is concerned, but there is some drama uh, as far as Oregon State trying to uh, right the ship in a home game against Colorado. Uh, there's some NBA... Games that are coming up uh, this weekend as well. Uh, if you are an NBA person, uh, I'm looking at the uh, NBA TV schedule for the weekend, and uh, my uh, my best bet. If you could only watch one game, guys, let's just give one more. Is there a game on Saturday that you love? I think the Blazers are in action on Saturday. Oh, they are. Toronto is is at Portland on Saturday. So that would be a game. Is that a game that is worth watching on your Saturday late night 7 o'clock game? Uh, not available on NBA League Pass, but it is on a channel in our local market. Looks like it's going to be on Root. And uh, you can uh, also catch it uh, streaming on Root SP+. What is SP+. Uh,
4: I don't know what SP+. Is. I know what Root Plus is. I don't know.
1: It says Root SP+. I don't know.
4: Well, Sports. Root channel.
1: Sports Plus. Root Sports Plus. <laughs> yeah, there you okay, go. There it is. All right. That's Saturday, seven o'clock. Raptors at Blazers. Damian Lillard trained to uh, score another sixty points. Um, what's your must-watch Saturday event of of those things I mentioned? You can only watch one of them. You watching the Raptors Blazers, or you watching one of the Pac-12 basketball games?
4: Personally, I'm probably watching Raptors Blazers. I. <sighs> I want to uh, watch OG Ananobi and fantasize about him in a Trailblazers uniform. <laughs> uh, Raptors are interesting. They're not good this year. They have some really good pieces, uh, and their general manager, Masai Ujiri, is really trying to hype them up as, you know, we have all these championship pieces, yet somehow we're a terrible team. Uh, so I want to watch them. I want to see if Dame can keep his heater going, so that's my choice.
1: Yeah, for is me, it, uh, Yeah, hold, turn- on. Before, okay, before hold on. Before before we go, Stephen, hold on. Uh, Peter, the description you used for the Raptors, You know, not a good team, but have some good pieces. Isn't that the Blazers' description, too?
4: Yeah, I mean, pretty much, right? You have Pascal Siakam, who's an all-NBA player. Uh, You have a young uh, OG Ananobi, a guard with a lot of hope, like in Anthony Simons, and then a couple other guys that just sort of don't fit, but maybe you can flip them for something. Maybe you
2: can't. Yeah, rookie of the year last
1: year, Scotty Barnes. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. There you go. Toronto at Portland in a—what do you got? Uh, That looks like a trade deadline special. Like, you could probably take some pieces from Toronto and flip them over to Portland and feel a lot better about the Blazers. Loser tanks. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah. There you go. I like that. Steven, what are you watching Saturday?
2: Uh, Yeah, I'll be be watching the Utah-Oregon game. I think it's uh, very fascinating. I I mentioned earlier I think four teams in the Pac-12 get in. I think Oregon could be one of those teams. And, you know, Oregon is in a stretch where they play the top five teams in the Pac-12 coming up in the next five games. And they're getting a lot healthier. And, you know, Nate Biddle. Uh, local Oregonian. He had a nice game last game against Colorado. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Going against Brandon Carlson of Utah, big guy I think is going to be important for Oregon to get some wins, especially at home um, at Matthew Knight Arena. So I'll be watching that one.
1: I like this game. That's a game I'm going to watch too. Utah at Oregon, 5 o'clock, Pac-12 Networks tomorrow. Because if Oregon's going to do anything this season, like if they are going to put it together and make a little run and prove that they can play better, healthy, um, You know, they beat Colorado last night. And Colorado's been a problem for Dana Altman, and they got that one, and they looked okay doing it. And, if you know, Utah is a program, you know, our guest earlier pointed out, Dana Altman is 22-2 and all-time against Utah since they moved to the Pac-12. Um, as much as Utah wants to be a football school, we all remember Rick Majeris, uh, Michael Doliak, Portland kid, uh, Andre Miller, and we think about Utah and basketball as a good program. Utah's in second place right now. They're half game out of first. This is an important game for Utah, and it's a really important game for Oregon, trying to piece together uh, some kind of run in the late season. Now, Dana Altman does this, but I keep talking to people in the Pac-12 who say, every time Dana Altman wins a game or two, you sh- he makes you believe they're about to turn the corner, and then what do they do? They lay an egg against somebody. So this is the game. Like, if, if Oregon puts this one together, all of a sudden they're on a win streak, multiple games, and they're looking at an opportunity, uh, just like we talked about Utah having an opportunity. After this game, Oregon goes to Arizona next week, and then Arizona State. Arizona State's in real trouble. Anybody who's watched Arizona State knows uh, Arizona State went on a little run, and I watched this happen when I was in Tempe. All of a sudden, UCLA and USC figured out you could zone them. Arizona State doesn't have a shooter. They don't have somebody who can hurt you if you're in a zone defense, and they really struggle with their zone offense. They have been in a real tailspin, and Washington did it to them again last night. Played zone against them. Bobby Hurley doesn't have an answer for it. So Oregon's going to Arizona, Arizona State next week, and then it's the L.A. schools. It's USC and UCLA. So the next five games, it's Utah, Arizona, Arizona State, USC, UCLA. Here's Oregon's chance to maybe uh, if they can win three of five, Uh, if they do look out because the standings will be all bunched up. It'll be nice and tight. Uh, All right. On Sunday, no doubt we'll be watching the AFC and NFC championship games. Um, I want to talk a little bit about the keys to the game. Um, For me, let's start with the early game, the noon game on Fox, the NFC title game. It's Niners at, at Eagles. For me, Key to this game is Jalen Hurts not passing, but Jalen Hurts running the ball and design runs, and on oh there's nothing there. I'm going to scramble with it. Runs. Patrick Mahomes killed the Niners uh, by leaving the pocket and running with the football, and just broke that defense down and really caused some problems earlier in the season. That's the last time the Niners lost. They're on this you know 13 game win streak or whatever you call it. That that loss to Kansas City earlier this season. Uh, was not a close game, and it scares me a little bit. And so I think the Niners, if they're going to win this game, Jalen Hurts can't be out there running the ball. Like, you can't look at the box score in the fourth quarter and see that that Jalen Hurts has got 45 rushing yards. That's not going to be a good performance by that Niners defense. So I'm looking at that as a key for the game for the 49ers. And on the flip side, if I'm, if I'm building a case for the Eagles winning this game, it's it has more to do with the fact like they need to stay on the field. I thought I thought the Seahawks did a good job in the wild card round and I thought the Raiders did a good job late in the season of just staying on the field against the 49ers defense. You don't need uh, to come up with big plays although the Seahawks and Raiders did hurt the Niners down the field with a big passing play both of them, but they did a nice job of just keeping the chains moving, staying on the field not allowing that 49ers offense to get back on the field. And they really uh, gave the 49ers difficulty. So I'm looking at first downs. I think the Eagles need a whole bunch of first downs. I don't like time of possession because, you know, score is a score. But I'd like to see, like, total number of plays, if I'm an Eagles fan, uh, favor the Eagles. They need to run more plays than the 49ers do. Guys, keys to the game for you guys in the Niners-Eagles matchup. For me, it's uh, it's going to be about just the first
2: half because the Eagles, number one in first half scoring all season, averaging 18 points a game in the first half. The next team is Kansas City at 15.7. You know, that's a pretty big difference. And I think if you're San Francisco, you don't want to put Brock Purdy in a situation where he's down by two scores early in the game or two scores at halftime, right? And so that way you know, he doesn't have to throw the ball all around in the second half. I think that's where he would get in trouble. So I think if you're the 49ers, you want to somehow slow down the Eagles' attack in the first half, and we saw Philadelphia get all up in the Giants' grill last week in the divisional round scoring on the first two possessions. I think that's going to be really important for San Francisco to at least weather the storm enough so they don't get down by you know two scores in the first half and have to build it, build the comeback because that's not really the 49ers' style, right? Like They want to run the football, be physical, wear you down. If they get down by a couple scores, they're going to have to rely on Brock Purdy to make a throw, and I just don't think that's what you want to do. Yeah, I, I I think
4: it's not giving Purdy enough time to find his guys. The interesting thing about the 49ers, man, is, is it's at three levels, right? You have Debo Samuel, then you've got George Kittle in the middle, and then you've got Christian McCaffrey coming out of the backfield. If you make it difficult for him to get enough time for one of those guys to shake free, I think that's a huge advantage. I mean, look, I, I certainly trust Brock Purdy a lot more than I did, say, four weeks ago, but the Eagles' defense has to make life difficult on him.
1: By the way, the uh, mayor of Cincinnati has issued an apology for trolling Pat, uh, Joe Burrow. Um, he, uh, excuse me, for trolling Patrick Mahomes by saying that uh, Joe Burrow needs a paternity <laughs> test. Um, he's saying, uh, you know, he uh, posted, he said, my competitive juices and love for Cincinnati got the best of me, my bad, staying hungry and humble. See you Sunday. You can't just say I'm staying hungry and humble after you've said that guy needs a paternity test to see if he's Patrick Mahomes' father. Like, you can't say that.
4: And his competitive juices, like he's playing in the game. Oh, yeah, the Cincinnati Mayor. He's just got that dog in him. You can't help it. He does.
2: He's got the dog in him. I mean, this is
1: such a 2023 story. Like, I just, I
2: I have a new peeve. Cincinnati Mayor.
1: He's apologized. There you go. Uh, Bengals Nation. Uh, They'll probably vote for him, though. The thing is, people in Cincinnati probably vote for him because they'll go, that's our guy. He had our back. (laughs) He's trolling on
2: Twitter. He's one of us.
1: He's ours. Leave it here. We'll talk about the Chiefs and the Bengals next.
0: Back to the Bald Face Truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game.
1: It's true. Next Thursday, I will be broadcasting live from the uh, Bed MGM Sportsbook uh, at Spirit Mountain. I hope to see you at 3 p.m. to 6 p.m. Come by for the broadcast. Check out the sportsbook there at Spirit Mountain. Uh, Been uh, going out to Spirit Mountain as part of this radio show for years. Be good to get back out there and uh, see the sportsbook. I haven't seen it yet, but I've seen video and I've seen pictures of the sportsbook. It looks like uh, Las Vegas popped up uh, in the middle of uh, Spirit Mountain's footprint there. So check it out next Thursday as we are live from Spirit Mountain. If you're in the neighborhood, please stop by, give a fist bump, say hello. Uh, Coming up top of the hour right here in 750 The Game is The Pulse with Peter Sampson. I am really curious what you're going to talk about on The Pulse. What do you got cooking?
4: Yeah, I mean, it's a Friday show. We always cut loose, have a little bit of fun, maybe pop open an adult beverage and uh, welcome the weekend. Uh, I got to talk about the Rams hiring uh, Mike LaFleur. I -hmm. I don't hate it. It's just, it's a little puzzling to me. Going to continue to give thoughts on the NFL playoffs. And uh, the Blazers made Jeremy Grant an offer today. No surprise there. No surprise that he turned it down as well. But uh, he's got a lot of leverage over this team.
1: Did you guys see that LeBron James jersey from the NBA Finals in 2013 sold for 3.7 million dollars? Record-breaking uh, sale. This was Game Seven jersey from the 2013 Finals, um, and uh, it, uh, uh, it the previous record for a game-worn LeBron jersey was 630 thousand dollars for his 2020 NBA All-Star Game top. This one went for three point seven million dollars. Talk about timing! By the way, it's the third highest sale for any jersey ever. The other two are Michael Jordan's last dance 1998 NBA Finals jersey and Diego Maradona's Hand of God jersey. Uh, those two are, are Maradona's jersey sold for nine point three million, and Michael Jordan's. Last Dance jersey, um, I think went for ten point one million. That's pretty. That's crazy. Uh, what do you do after you buy that thing? Do you uh, put it on the wall? You frame it? You hire a security guard?
4: Get drunk and put it on. That's what I do. <laughs> you know,
1: Shoots some boobs. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I had a I had a friend of mine. We were we were watching uh, a one of those UFC MMA fights, and he went in between the bouts, and he came out wearing a Jim Brown jersey from like the nineteen fifties. <laughs> And uh, and I was like, "What do you like? Just decided to put that thing on and you know parade it around like you know that should be framed in plastic somewhere. Like you can't wear that after you buy it.
2: <laughs> that's like uh, that's like <laughs> the Steph Curry mouth- mouthpiece that throws in the crowd. Do you do it? and put it on. Yeah, yeah wear you can it. Wash it.
1: Well, we had uh, we had a member of the show back in the day sat in the very seat that you're in, Stephen, who got Achilles Smith's mouthpiece from one of the uh, Oregon Ducks games. And I asked him that very question. What did you do with it? Like, what do you do with a mouthpiece? At the end of the game, you know how the players throw a wristband or something, of gloves up into the crowd, and you know some kid leaning over the rail grabs it? Well, Achilles Smith handed this young kid his mouthpiece, and I asked him, I said, what did you do with it? And he said he put it in a Ziploc bag, and he stapled it to the uh, wall in his bedroom.
4: <laughs> that's, that's how you keep a mouthpiece. Not exactly framed, but I like it.
1: You like, you know, keeping it safe. I, in case you need a mouthpiece in the middle of the night, you, you just grab that sucker and put it in. Because do you want to wash it? Like when you put it out, do you wash it? You'd have to wash it first,
2: right? But then it then it loses its uh, its credibility, right? It doesn't have the I, DNA of
1: on there. I think you would have to sterilize it. You can't I put it in have your to. mouth.
4: Does it eventually I, get moldy, okay, or do you just I, coat it in vegetable oil? vegetable oil? oil yeah. yeah.
1: I'll, I'll share something that's kind of disgusting on that front. And right. I, I remember Dennis Erickson came on earlier in the show. And we were talking about San Jose State football in the 1970s and 80s, and I was like 10-year-old kid and watching those teams. One of the players on the team, after a game, I was that kid leaning, leaning over the railing as the, the players went up the ramp. One of the players, a defensive lineman, took off his arm pad and handed it to me and then went up the ramp. That arm pad had hit, was soaked with his sweat. Okay, My mother was so mad at me. I put that arm pad on. I don't think I took it off for about 2 weeks. <laughs> it th- let me tell you a McDonald's french fry doesn't rot, but a sweaty arm pad is not a pleasant thing after a while. But I didn't I was so afraid to wash it because that was my guy's sweat. And so I wore that arm pad to school. It stunk. I had it at home. It stunk. Finally one day my mother washed it. And uh, I I'm planning on tracking that player down, and writing about him sometime. Like, you know, it was a tremendous impact on a nine or ten year old kid. Achilles Smith gave his mouthpiece to another kid, and you know, you make a memory. Yeah, that's one of those things where I think if you're a parent, you
2: gotta you gotta sneak it right. You gotta sneak the armband <laughs> and wash it without you noticing. Like you go that's to bed, gross. You go to bed, and that's when you wash it or something. But I mean, I get it, I get it. I I don't have anything like that. I don't think I've ever really gotten any type of memorabilia from. Like a person, I I went online one time because I was uh, I was looking for my old like uh, basketball jersey when I played in college. Mm, yeah, and I uh, email I had emailed some people and they didn't have it, so I went online and I found a uh, Concordia women's jersey, oh. but it's the same number as mine, so I bought it off eBay and I put it up in my house. It's, it's in the office. I act like it's mine. I just don't re- don't pretend. just pretend it's not a women's jersey. But Could you fit into it? No.
4: But I, so, I think you could. Have you could, tried to put it on? Get drunk and put all it the on. Time. Yeah. Oh, he
1: one hundred percent. He's put that thing <laughs> on. 100% that's a hundred percent. Like, he's worn it. If you look at the jersey, you couldn't tell that it doesn't fit me. Like yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah. I am mean,
2: a little yeah. bigger now, but it's like oh yeah. When I play it, I could I could fit it when I play what it. What
1: number did you wear at Concordia? I, I was thirty four. My final season. Okay, that's a good number. Yeah, Ryder, baby, lost one. one. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, here you go. Uh, keys to the game, guys. Uh, Cincinnati and Kansas City. Uh, I'll go first for the Bengals. Bengals are 10-0 and 0 when they lead after the first quarter of this season. So key to the game, um, you know, Cincinnati when it gets in trouble this season and the games they've lost, they have gotten off to a slow start and they've struggled to protect Joe Burrow. That's where they have problems, um, you know, against a team like the Chiefs that can score. I think the Bengals are going to have to score and I think they're going to have to score early. What do, What do you guys say?
2: Yeah, I think you hit on it with the offensive line. Uh, you know, They did a good job last week against the Bills protecting Burrow, uh, but I think a lot of that had to do with the snow. The Bills looked a step slow in that one. I think the Chiefs got some dudes, Chris Jones, Frank Clark, I think they're going to get after the quarterback, Joe Burrow. I think it's really important uh, to keep him up for the Bengals. I think for the Chiefs, I think the running game is going to be really important for them. Um, you know, Tyreek Hill not on the team. They've lost that explosiveness. They're more of a, not a dink and dunk, but you know they'll be more methodical. I think against the Bengals, like you said, the Bengals can score some points. Chiefs got to run the football with uh, Pacheco and just kind of move the chains around.
4: Yeah, I'm looking at, it's. this is such an evenly matched game. I'm looking at something like special teams or takeaways being the difference here. We, You know the Bengals are going to be fired up. I think Mahomes, I agree with Steven and you, that I think Mahomes, there's a little bit of gamesmanship here. He's going to be pretty healthy. This might come down to just a crazy pick six, a fumble return, a, a huge kickoff return maybe that doesn't go to the house, but gives a team great field position. Something like that's going to be the difference.
1: You can get pretty good odds right now in uh, one of the defenses scoring in this game. I look- it up on DraftKings because mm. I thought I thought the same thing with both games. I thought you know we always get into these NFC title games, AFC title games. And we talk about the offense and defense and what happens. Uh, somebody fumbles the ball and there's a there's a uh, scoop and score or there's a special team score uh, or somebody takes a kickoff back and and uh, flips the whole thing on its head. So we'll see what happens. But I'll tell you one thing that is certain: we don't know who's going to win these games for sure. I like the Niners. I like the Bengals. I'll take in the two road teams. That said, I can tell you the only certain thing is we're going to be here Monday to talk about it and start talking about the Super Bowl. It'll be really exciting. And next week, next Thursday, as I mentioned, we will be broadcasting from the sports book at Spirit Mountain Casino. Come out and see us next Thursday. But I want everybody to have a great weekend, and I want you to stick around if you're listening on 750 The Game. Peter Sampson and The Pulse are coming up. Uh, He will... uh, Take you into your weekend, so to speak. The bald-faced truth not here for a long time. Just a good time. Thank you to Stephen. Thank you to Judah and everybody. We'll see you next week.